So you recommend Metroid, sorry, Super Metroid then as well? Yes, I do. It's a bit more, um, it's a bit more difficult than Symphony of the Night. But, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Symphony of the Night, I think, does a better job of building up its difficulty because once it gets to the inverted castle, it's pretty difficult. But yeah, um, yeah. Super Metroid's kind of tough right from the word go, which yeah. is... Uh, Metroid Fusion is also... Metroid Fusion's much, much, much more accessible than uh, yeah. Super Metroid. The GBA um, version? Yeah. 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 Can you still not get that on the uh, Virtual Console 3DS? Nope. nope. They're going to release it for the Wii U instead, which makes <laughs> no sense. I don't, have, I don't have a Wii U. It makes no See, sense. Nobody does. See, I've had this conversation on the last Game Burst. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, I heard that. What? It makes no sense that they release like it's a handheld game. Release it on the 3DS. No, no, like... that's just for the ambassadors. Their receptions are noted for such distinguished taste. Oh, that's the thing as well. Yeah, because the ambassadors <laughs> already have Metroid Fusion yeah. on the 3DS and, so and Minish Cap. <laughs> yeah, yep. so it's not like oh, it'd be hard to. It's not the card is literally there in the pipe, waiting to sink down the tubes. Oh, well. (laughs) Digital Drift, episode 9, recorded Monday the 31st of March 2014. Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Most of the intelligence community doesn't believe he exists. The ones that do call him the Winter Soldier. He's a ghost. You'll never find him. shield to protect people. Captain, to build a better world sometimes means tearing the old one down. And that makes enemies. People are going to die. I can't let that happen. Captain America needs my help. When do we start? We just did. The price of freedom is high. And it's a price I'm willing to pay. He told me not to trust anyone. This is how it ends. Everything goes. Looks like you're giving the orders now, Captain. How do we know the good guys from the bad guys? If they're shooting at you, they're bad. Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games, and media culture. Welcome to the Digital Drift. (music) 
Welcome back to the ninth in our long-running series of Avengers podcasts. Started on Digital Gonzo and continued on Digital Drift. This time we're talking about Phase 2, Film 3, Captain America, colon, The Winter Soldier, with obvious spoilers from the get-go. So if you've not seen it yet, and are even the slightest bit on the fence, take our word. This one is both of a high standard of blockbuster and a game-changer for the series. Go see, then come back and listen. Rejoining us back on the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier are long-time Avengers reviewers, gamma-irradiated genius Joshua Garrity of Cane and Wince. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming back. Iron Patriot Neil Taylor of Game Burst. <laughs> Wait, does that mean I'm a bad guy? <laughs> and also of Game Burst, the man with the power of one million exploding suns, it's Jerome McIntosh of Game Burst. Good day, sir. I'm I'm not quite sure what that means, but it's the century. I'm seeding the century for the oh. first time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, I I just don't know how that works. Well, I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm born witness to the, <laughs> the power that you exhibit, and of course, my wingman is ex-Soviet super spy Sharon Shaw. Hello. And I remain a uh, genius billionaire playboy philanthropist in training. <laughs> Right, so Kevin Feige described this film as a 1970s political thriller masquerading as a big superhero movie. Anthony Mackie described the film as Avengers Assemble, part 1.5. You be the judge. Sharon, you've got a thing to say before we start. It's about, well, it's about actors complaining about the fact that they're stuck doing Marvel movies. Boo-hoo. Indeed. Um... <clears throat> okay, so this was something that I just wanted to um, to add in to the intro to the podcast. Since Marvel made it abundantly clear that multi-picture crossovers were their ticket to success in the film industry, the stars of the show have been sealed into lengthy contracts requiring them to be available to appear in half a dozen movies, in some cases up to nine. Chris Evans has expressed some consternation with this. He's not the only one, and there is a variety of reasons the deal might be seen as less than fantastic, from being unable to take up other scripts, to the money not being as good for some actors as others, to the demands of maintaining a skin-tight, spandex-ready physique for what could be several years. Articles have been written sympathising with Evans and his colleagues for their difficult position, and others have suggested that they should shut up and appreciate the money and consistent work that many people, hell, many actors, never see. My intention here is not to tell Evans to shut up, far be it from me to make judgments on someone else's situation without knowing all the facts. But his gripe with the arrangement seems to be that by being committed to Marvel long term, his acting skills are not getting the same level of workout, or indeed recognition, as his amazing gluteal muscles. And speaking as someone who has spent an inordinate amount of time appreciating both, I would like to assure him that this is not the case. As I hope this podcast will demonstrate, the standard of performance set forth by the cast of The Winter Soldier is impressive to say the least. It should not be marginalised because it is set to be seen by a huge worldwide audience, not just the can panel and six dedicated Cineworld card holders. One other thing that uh, occurred to me while I was actually watching uh, um, this film, uh, and it applies specifically to the upcoming um, uh, X-Men Days of Future Past and The Amazing Spider-Man 2, well, it, it, it springs from something that you muttered to me about how, uh, wh- why, why are Sony still being so belligerently uh, withholding of the Spider-Man license? And it, this occurred to me while I was watching all the Spider-Man films last week in preparation for us seeing them again this week to thus review them for the show. Um, 
they feel very singular and kind of small now that we've actually had the Avengers. And, um, you know, watching Daredevil as well made me realize this is going to be the last ever, the first and last Daredevil film. There's not, you can't really do Daredevil on his own now. Not without someone else significant. Um, they've upped the game. Defenders. Yeah, well, you, you can, you can do him in a TV show, but it's all, it's winding up to the Defenders. Um, uh, there's an argument for the fact that Daredevil should have been a TV show to begin with and not that film. They upped the game with the Avengers. And the reason that Marvel Comics took off in the 60s and uh, DC Comics was also gathering steam at this point during the Silver Age is because of the crossovers. That's what made the world far more textured. And this comes, of course, from not just focusing on a superhero and their life, but having that life touch the lives of others. I think we said something on these lines in, in the Avengers, but it's really taken hold since we did that show because that was at ground zero. And now we've had several years to ponder this. They can't really go back to just doing solo films. And when they do, they're going to feel lacking in some way. So crossovers are not only a bonus, they're becoming downright essential. Discuss. Well I, well, I think the movies are evolving in the same way the comics evolved years and years ago, and um, they've continued to follow the same pattern. Like, for example, uh, in the early days, comic book movies were very, very kiddie or family-focused, mm. and then they became more mature. And comics did a similar thing during the 70s and 80s. Mm. Um, obviously, the crossover stuff came before the... <laughs> mature comic books but now we're ha seeing that stuff now I just think it's a natural progression um, yeah. and the more and more comic book studios have control over their own properties and I, I, I hope something happens to allow Spider-Man to be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because I, I think he belongs there but yeah I think as uh, these movies evolve um Hopefully DC can uh, get their act together. We're going to see more and more of this. And I think the idea of a, a superhero on their own is going to cease to exist. I think the one comic book where it makes sense to keep it separate is the X-Men. Mm. I was going to ask only... Neil about that, but carry on. You know where I stand on the X-Men. I know, I know, carry on. It's only, for me, it's because the X-Men universe is so huge in its own right. There are so many characters in that universe that it can stand alone. And also, and I think Neil is probably going to bring up this point, it doesn't make sense that everyone hates mutants but is okay with all these other superheroes. That's the one part of the Marvel Universe that I thought was slightly odd. It but everyone's has had like, to stick with that over the years and yeah. sort of like, well, this is kind of a given, but no one's ever really asked why, even yeah. during House of M. I have a suggestion on that, though. And you would have to get into the philosophy of it, which is difficult to do in an action film, but it is feasible because with a superhero who has obtained their powers from somewhere else, the general populace can look at them and say, well, clearly you're special. Something happened that was fated to happen that made you special and elevated you above the rest of us. That's a big Mutants. assumption on the part of the population all believing in fate. What about the part, the large well, what, proportion who believe in determinism? What, whatever reason they want to give 
themselves in their heads for saying that well, like the Captain large America of has these who powers. Who disparage the Amazing Spider-Man movies for saying, "Oh, he's fated to be Spider-Man." Well, that's cod shit. All right, okay. Forget that I mentioned fate. All I mean is it enables people to look at them and say, "Well, you have something that I don't, and therefore it is right that you have these powers and I haven't." Mutants, however, are born with their abilities, and so they can happen to anybody, and they bring the powers down to the level of any human being can be born with this, and I think that would scare a lot of people. Mm. Also, there are superheroes who are feared within the Marvel regular superhero world, like the Hulk. Everyone's terrified of him because he's a a, a force of nature that uh, represents a natural disaster. Right, and that's that's knowing that he was the result of a, a, an experiment that went wrong. Imagine an environment where people knew that anybody could be born like that. We could have egg on our face in a year or so's time. It's only a year now. After what happens at the end of this movie, it is the age of miracles. Yeah, as I was saying, that this has really kind of struck me with Spider-Man. Well, I'll go into it um, when we talk about... Because we haven't seen Amazing 2 yet, uh, but when what Sony appeared to be rumbling about, if you remember, um, I was predicting way back, uh, I think we were doing Iron Man 3, I was like, Andrew Garfield's been holding Avengers magazines, that means he's going to be in Avengers. And um, uh, Mark Webb, when questioned about it on Twitter, said, think bigger. And I was like, oh my god, is going to No. Sinister Six movies. Loads of Sinister Six movies, because that's what we all want to see, like a Dark Avengers, like a bunch of bad guys all together robbing banks and taking over New York. And I appear to be the only person who's got serious misgivings about the, them focusing on Sinister Six in an attempt to ape the Avengers. No one's going to see a, a Vulture movie. Mm-hmm. Venom they could get away with. I think that they're also talking about retiring Peter for a couple of movies and bringing in Venom as the focus of the uh, the, the web slinging. And I, nothing sounds good about that. Yeah. No. The problem with that, I think, is that if well, you, you lose do the heart that, of Spider-Man. Well, exactly. You're you're patently trying to appeal to comic fans, and mm, comic fans yeah. want niche. to see Spider-Man in the Marvel universe. Yeah. Mm. See, one of the biggest things is spider-man is essentially the easiest one to make movies about because he's so it's something so easy to relate to and everything mm. whereas okay. yeah when it comes to the wider marvel universe because they are far more interconnected with one another it's mm. hard to separate them out and one one of the great things that we've had is now we get the continuity sort of of comic books without the age-long, long-running complications that yeah. come with what they've run into. Oh, we're going to get it's, some of them at some point, yeah. though, when they start it, recasting. It's similar to when they were doing the 90s cartoons, because if you remember, all of those were crossing over whenever yeah. they wanted, because they had no issues with licensing, and it made it more believable. Guest appearances and stuff. But, yeah, uh, you say, Sharon, that they're trying to appeal to comic fans. That's, that's not actually what they're trying to do. What they're actually trying to do is do the Avengers without sharing any money with Disney. Thank you very much, indeed. Oh, well, I'm sure that's a thread of it anyway, but... Yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about that more when we come to Spider-Man. But I'm interested. I was just interested in hearing what you guys had to say about the idea of, of the, branching out into what appears to now be three different universes: the X-Men universe, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and the self-contained 
Spider-Man universe, which is, as you say, X-Men, enough characters, enough history, and the fact that they've maintained the continuity throughout, even if they are appearing to go off on divergent uh, histories, Spider-Man's the one that's in trouble. Because yeah. it's all about Peter with that. And you take Peter out of the picture and you lose the fucking focus. Yeah. And also, I, I'd like Peter's rogues gallery amongst the rest of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Um, someone like Norman Osborn as a main villain for the Avengers, that yeah. would be great. But uh, unfortunately... We're just we're not going to have access to that. And as much as I love, you know, Iron Man four and all, and all those other characters, they don't have the rogues gallery Spider Man has. Yeah. And um, it's just oh, that's the thing that bothers me the most is just not having um, access to all these great villains that Spider Man has. Iron Man to. versus Doc Ock. Yeah. Just exactly. you could have that one for free, folks. Um, no, you're absolutely right. Spider-Man's got all the villains and a brilliant hero. And Avengers has got that wider universe. I don't get why they couldn't, like, knit those two things together. Well, at one point, what wasn't... I think you already hearkened on this, sorry. But they were. it seemed as if they were talking about negotiating having him appear in the Avengers. Oh, yeah. They talked about it. They just didn't sort it out. They didn't get it done. There was going to be, like, Oscorp Tower was going to be in the Avengers movie, but they just couldn't get it sorted at the last minute. And, and it, it seems like Sony have gone, well, we'll just do roughly the same thing, but with villains. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like I said, that's... That, that's troubling, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, Amazing Spider-Man 2 may really pull it off, and it might be suddenly everyone's really interested in seeing what happens in a solo Electro movie. Yeah. Um, anyway, so let's get to Captain America colon the Winter Soldier. Some trivia before we start. Unlike the other films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Winter Soldier minimizes the use of visual effects as much as possible. Also superpowers, I might add. Anthony Mackie elaborated the Russos. Uh, what they did was uh, so great that they wanted to stay with live action, which is a dying art form. If they could build it, they built it. If we could do it, we did it. They wanted to do as little CGI as possible. That's why the movie looks so great. I'm guessing at least one of us was very happy they did that. <laughs> I say nothing. <laughs> I, knew, <laughs> I was talking about you. Uh, the Falcons Flight Gear Sports, a Stark Industries logo. However, oh, because of course. <laughs> of course. Well, it felt like a, an Iron Man suit of sorts, like an early Iron Man suit with great big wings to get caught on things. Anthony Mackie was unhappy with the modern take on his costume as Falcon. He wanted the red spandex from the comics. <laughs> oh. Looking like a non-updated DC character from the 70s. In one scene, Natasha Romanoff wears a necklace with an arrow on it. Hmm. Reference to, obviously, Clint Barton. In the scene where Alexander Pierce, Robert Redford, is opening his refrigerator, a jar of Newman's own sauce is visible <laughs> on the shelf. An apparent homage to Paul Newman, who starred in several movies with Robert Redford. Anna Kendrick, Felicity Jones, Imogen Poots, Teresa Palmer, Alison Brie, Amelia Clark, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Elizabeth Olsen, Scarlet Witch, and Jessica Brown Findlay were all considered to play... Sharon or Sharon Carter if you know you're Captain America that's uh, Agent 13 as I believe she was called in, in the, uh, the uh, his neighbour alright uh, she's a major Captain America character so that was one for the fans I'll talk about her in a bit 
I've got a whole section on hidden stuff. There's 13 points to it. Uh, and Nick Fury's grave bears the epitaph. Anybody? Oh, God. The Path of the Righteous Man from Ezekiel 2517. Which is, of course, from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> nice. I went, I was the only person in my audience who yelped at that. Everyone else was like, what? Nick Fury's grave? What? And... Uh- I did. I know, but I yelped so loud I couldn't hear you. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, uh, one of the scientists at the birth of the Winter Soldier was named Ed Brubaker, the man who created the Winter Soldier storyline. So we all saw this film in the past few days and have a lot to say about it. As we record this, America, have, have they got it yet or not quite? It's the 4th of April it comes out, I think. Yeah, so they haven't even got it like for several days. We feel blessed. Either way, we're releasing this slightly later to make sure that the Americans have a chance to see it over the weekend. Uh, so we have a series of talking points to throw out to the team and see what takes shape. So what I'm going to do is basically we'll cover all the characters in the form of a question. Directors Anthony and Joe Russo. Anybody know what else they have done? Community. Yeah. (laughs) Like 15 episodes of it. Oh my god, that explains it. That does. That also explains why Alison Brie was uh, asked to uh, consider for... um, Interesting that you mentioned Anna Kendrick, actually, because when um, we were uh, toying with the idea of um, Jessica Drew, she occurred to me as a possible Hmm. casting choice. Okay. (laughs) They did some episodes of Arrested Development. Oh, right. And a film from a while back. uh, I think it was the last film that... Who was that guy who played the the, uh, Creole guy in Green Mile? Michael Jeter starred in. Uh, that was just before he died. Welcome to Collinwood. Uh, do you remember that? Um, it was a heist movie. Sam Rockwell's in it. Uh, who, of course, went on to become Justin Hammer. And George Clooney's in a wheelchair. I no? remember. I haven't seen it, but I... I Very small-scale movie. They also directed You, Me and Dupree. Okay. I honestly wouldn't have picked these guys out of a hat to direct a Captain America movie, let alone a really, really good Captain America movie. Marvel taking risks. Yeah. See, you know, the last time they uh, took a risk was Iron Man 3, and they gave it to uh, Shane Black and let him fuck around. And we all know how that turned out. But to, to be back. fair to Marvel, that choice made sense from a distance, I think. Oh, yeah. And um, it was very popular, so it didn't do them any harm. Um, I, I'm just glad that they keep d- making these kind of decisions, mm. um, despite you know the ups and downs they've had. Um, yeah. They just they keep making interesting choices. I think it's just good the fact that they do superhero mo- superhero movies, but it's the fact that there's a superhero in the film and it can be a political thriller or something else. Yeah, yeah, I really I do appreciate that fact because it shows you. Yeah, it's a superhero film, 
but it's more than that. You can do more with this. And it's basically Marvel going, pick your game up, studios. And quite frankly, DC, <laughs> they're probably just pointing and laughing at him going, what are they doing? I Building think, smashing. Uh, just uh, this might be slightly off the original question, but uh, as um, Neil was talking about it, I, I think the reason why I love this movie as much as I do is because it tried something completely different from the mm. other Phase 2 movies. Mm. I feel mm. like the other Phase 2 movies tried and failed to replicate the Avengers um, in a lot of ways in terms of tone and in terms of uh, structure. And uh, they didn't quite succeed because, you know, the Avengers is a very hard act to follow uh, in a lot of ways. Whereas Captain America the Winter Soldier said, no... The Avengers, like that style of film, let's save it for when the next Avengers film turns up. Yeah. We're going to do something very different with this character and very different with this universe. Um, I, I'm really happy about it because um, remember when we were talking about Iron Man 3, we said um, after the Avengers, maybe it was the reason why we weren't liking these movies as much mm. is because we were used to the idea of these characters all together yeah. and it was kind of boring having them separate afterwards. This movie made me realise that that's definitely not the case. Um, it's just... Um, you have to do something interesting. You just have to do something different. Mm. And that's what this movie did. I would also point out that this movie really shows up how weak the enemy or the, the villainous characters are in both Iron Man 3 and um, oh, Thor, The Dark World. Because, yeah. mm. oh, right, yeah, it is Robert Redford, who is a phenomenal actor, but he actually gave him motivations. and He wasn't just mustache twirling, ah, ha, ha, I shall destroy the world. It's, mm. I have motivations and goals, and I'm a human being with levels. And, and also just the fact that they managed to make Hydra scary. Because um, in the first Captain America movie, they were Hydra funny. were just yeah. ridiculously camp. They were Cobra by way of Indiana Jones. Yeah. Yes. Well, but what? in this movie, they were a really credible threat and terrifying, the way they managed to infiltrate S.H.I.E.L.D. without anyone noticing. And Rob, I, I have to say, casting Robert Redford um, as the main... he I mean, the Winter Soldier is an antagonist in this movie, but Robert Redford is the main antagonist. Oh, yeah. Um, genius move, because even though you kind of know early on that he's going to end up being the villain, because he's so charismatic and charming, you're like, oh, maybe he'll turn out to be the good guy, and I'm I'm just being wrong here. Or he'll be doing bad things for a good reason? Yes. Oh, no, no, it's a bad reason. And I, I noticed that Powers Booth wasn't in this movie like he was in the Avengers, and I wondered if at some point Powers Booth was meant to be the character that uh, Robert Redford plays in this movie but it was and too they, obvious he was yeah. fucking evil yeah, was just, <laughs> no he's evil yeah, straight yeah. away yeah two seconds even his mum goes oh powers turn your face away from me you're <laughs> yeah. terrifying me with that smile uh, oh mama I think what what I liked about the difference um, in as you say the, the other phase three films and, and where this was going um, or phase two, sorry. Phase three um, is profit. <laughs> <laughs> I think they've already hit that. Yeah, they, they did that with Avengers. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but uh, a lot of the talk after Avengers was how do you go bigger than that? And, yeah. and the fact that, you know, they, they trash New York and then the next thing you know, they're going to have to trash the entirety of America and then it's going to be just, you know, pull back far enough and blow up the world. That's the only way you can go bigger well, than well, that. Well, I mean, in, uh, in, in Thor the Dark World, the entire universe. Well, exactly. Stage. But that as, as one dark elf and time, his 14 dark elf mates don't like the lights. But as we discussed at the time, you, there comes a point where you're so big, you can't expect your audience to in any way empathize with that or, or comprehend the size of the threat that you're implying. One thing I really liked about the way this was handled was the threat was relatively small. And I think that works very well with Cap as a character because if you compare him to the rest of the Avengers, he's small. You stand him next to Hulk and Thor and, you know, people who can do all of these huge, massive things. He's he's practically a normal guy with a decent shield. Or Tony Stark, he may be awesome as Iron Man, but his influence is awe-inspiring. Cap is... uh, is to a degree, he's standing next to his own shadow, as in Steve Rogers, able to affect the world reg- relative to how much Cap is able to affect the world. And that's the, the, the balance between that, the, 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 the fairly tender link, is where the tension lies. It's very much like uh, this whole Superman thing without the invulnerability of being Superman. Mm knowing that you are very much vulnerable, even with this super serum, the fact that you've had all this training, you still can... The things you go against can still take you down. Well, one of the moments I I really liked about this movie was a fight he has earlier on with just a pirate, Mm, which proved, like... Although Not Cap- like it sounds, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Real pirates. Yeah, yeah but um, <laughs> bad pirates. It showed Italian that it, sh- it, it showed that as long as the f- the uh, the opponent he was going up against was skilled enough, Cap could have a hard time. Mm. Um, uh, it ends with him winning, of course, but I, I just love that little bit of flavor showing you: look, this guy may be a superhero, but he's not Superman. He's not Thor. Yeah. He can take. You know, he can only take so many punches to the face. The guy who played uh, Batrop was a um, it was George Saint Pierre, a uh, MMA fighter, and uh, he looked every bit of it. I did wonder actually if it might turn out that Batrock had had some kind of enhancements, mm. but it was never touched on. So yeah, like like you say, it's a case of somebody with the right training and the right determination um, can actually defend against Steve. He's not an unstoppable force. Hmm. This felt like a Bourne film, most definitely. Almost the whole way through. When I say a Bourne film, one of the Bourne trilogy, because the day after, Sharon and I watched the Bourne Legacy for the first time to see what Hawkeye was doing through all of this. Doesn't even come close to the uh, Bourne trilogy. Which is no poor reflection on Jeremy Renner, just for the record. He was trying really, really hard. Yeah, he, he trained really hard and he's, he's very intense in the role. But it, it, it was in the hands of it was Tony Gilroy who wrote and adapted the uh, first three but didn't direct them. And, and when he directs, tends to be more like Michael Clayton. So th- there is a certain energy required for this type of film to really keep pushing it forwards. It's less about men in, in rooms talking to each other about projects that happened and failed and what they've got to do about it and when it comes down to it really it's about giving you a clear goal Mm. this man sees this is rotten he escapes and has to fix it 
it really comes down to that. And, and uh, uh, Born Legacy, when it comes down to it, has a murky goal. But that's part of the uh, beauty of why uh, uh, Winter Soldier is, is extremely uh, accomplished, despite the fact that it's moving so fast and despite the fact that it's full of uh, complicated political back and forth. It does have a very simple through flow. Steve Rogers is unfamiliar with the America he now finds himself in. And so that was my next question. How is America depicted in this film? I think they managed to strike a good balance of saying, look, there are things that are good about America, especially early on with his interactions with Falcon, where he has that list of all the things that have happened since World War II. I think it was just that. I think that list was there really to for a, for a laugh uh, at first, but also to remind the audience, yeah, there are some good things that this world has created. Yeah. Um, but the also, moon landing was mentioned on there. I thought that that would uh, be huge for Steve. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's pretty obvious. This film has a, a very strong liberal uh, leaning uh, from yeah. the politics <laughs> displayed here. Um, it, there's some commentary about the surveillance state mm-hmm. that America is slowly turning into, and the control of everyone's lies and the access to information that everyone has now. There is no. Uh, personal information anymore not really if you're on the internet people can access all sorts of things about you and it was um while it wasn't um i don't think it was directly saying all that stuff was bad i think it was saying that in the wrong hands in the hands of people with a very morally questionable questionable agenda uh can be hugely destructive um There was a really nice touch with regards to that, actually. Um, And this was a tiny little thing, and it may not even have been intentional. But when um, they were in the bunker and um, Zola first turned up, um, he gives he basically refers to them both by name. But he calls Natasha Natalia. Mm. which suggests that all of the information about her that is publicly accessible refers to her as Natalia. So Natasha is something that she's managed to keep personal to her immediate circle. Yeah. And uh, if you remember, folks, Natalia was the name she was going under in Iron Man 2. Mm. Also, to follow on the point that Josh made about the whole... It being very liberal, the fact that you've got a character like Sam Wilson, who's a soldier who's been through war and he's, he, he, he enjoys not being beholden to the military. The fact that he's very clearly not for the way S.H.I.E.L.D. does things or how the country is being served at the moment is quite a big factor of this yeah. oh the the conversation they have about um yeah. what look you know the state that war leaves you in once you return home just like yeah that this film is actually taking that kind of conflict really seriously in a way that the first captain america didn't i feel one of the negative points i would point out about that first film is it really glorified war in a way that i felt kind of uncomfortable about Mm. um but this film does not at all Uh, it's very clear that war is not a good thing neil I don't think it glorified. Well, what I think they were going for in that feel that uh, of, of the first Captain America film was sort of that uh, Indiana Jones sort of romp, mm. that sort of throwback. It wasn't, it wasn't as serious as this. 
it wasn't a serious look at war as like how this film takes its subject matter seriously. It was like a throwback to sort of like uh, Joe Johnson's other films, like The Rocketeer and things like yeah. that. I understand that, but um, World War Two is still. It's not that long ago, and it, it can still rub people up the wrong way. And um, I felt in certain scenes they might have uh, gone a little bit too... I, I mean, I still think overall it's a good movie. I'm not, like, seriously criticising it. There are worse, there are far worse offenders than that. But uh, um, it, I did have a few issues with that. I think one of the biggest reasons why they had to remain a bit more light-hearted in the first one is the fact you are dealing with a villain like well, an organization like Hydra, Red which Scum. is like yeah. uber Nazism, past like so bad Nazism that Nazis don't even. Yeah, Nazis like are going, That's a bit harsh. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, uh, World War Two specifically was one of the last wars where they were able to do propaganda. I think Korean War probably comes under this as well. But by the time Vietnam uh, came around, it was starting to become very troubled. It was the last time they could do propaganda-style adventures set in the war while the war was going on. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, they made sort of you know, big, thrilling war stories. It would be really hard to make thrilling Afghanistan war stories these days. Yeah. The, the modern-day equivalent is, is sort of, you know, the, the, the cold um, Call of Duty-style uh, movie. Or at, at its most... <sighs> socially acceptable I suppose the militaristic masturbation of Michael Bay's Transformers films I don't know you still get well, good films they're just not the romps you get stuff like Zero uh, Zero Dark Thirty and yeah. uh, The Hurt Locker and which yeah which are, uh, tend to be quite um, morally troubling and uh, and quite divisive about uh, what are they trying to say which is a good thing because a, a good movie about a conflict a modern-day conflict should leave the audience in not entirely sure as to which agenda they're pressing. I they're think pressing one agenda, it's propaganda in one direction or the other. One of the the key elements of the um, the agenda, if you like, with this though was um, the the type of liberal attitude that they seem to be putting forward was that ideals, whosoever they are and whatever form they take, can be corrupted. Yeah. And ultimately, the only way that you can keep things pure is by focusing on the people and doing what's best for the people. And I think Sam was really important in uh, in showing that because the element of the military that he was bringing in was looking at how they were damaged and how they were um, being helped to get better afterwards and, yeah. and supporting each other. Um, and um, and his relationship with Steve was very heavily based on that, which really appealed to me. The fact that despite the years that divided them and despite the fact that Steve, the, the America that Steve was having to interact with was one that he was completely unfamiliar with, here was this man whose experiences were very similar to his. And that, you know, that that sensation of being uh mob and demob is the same irrespective of your time period and your and your um your individual experiences the other thing about world war ii by today's standards is that it's a war that we can point at and say good things came of this yeah we can also say bad things came of it but ultimately now everybody involved in it is either dead or very very close um, it's a terrible thing to say, but it, it happens to be true that the, the fact that 70 years has now passed puts them in the Peggy camp. Um, and if you do a, a movie about a modern war, you're actually affecting ongoing politics yeah. by what you say. True. 
including silent secret war of uh, surveillance. Which, of course, is pretty topical right now. Absolutely. So uh, you have to be uh, fairly cautious about how you promote one thing or the other in in terms of that. But this one most definitely uh, seemed to be coming at it from the point of view of this can be misused and the the potential for this to be turned on the Western world were it to fall into the wrong hands uh, is is pretty terrifying. It's also a relatively believable plot as well. I mean, they didn't really go crazy with the aliens and and, um, I, I was expecting the whole way through, dreading almost, for um, Robert Redford to pull off his face and for it to be revealed to be the Red Skull. Now, I, ideolog- I was kind of waiting for that. Yeah, ideologically speaking, that did happen. However, it managed to stay on the side of relatively believable. Mm. I mean, obviously, you dealing with in- incredible military tech uh, and, you know, flying around and shooting folks, but on just the right side of you could put this out as a um, movie entirely irrespective of Captain America and for it to be billed as uh, militaristic, but not sci-fi. Yeah. Well, the thing is, even The Winter Soldier isn't actually that unbelievable if you've seen the uh, progress that prosthetics have made in the last few years. Like, that's totally within reason now. Like, a giant metal arm that's you know stronger than a regular arm oh, yeah. that's not that crazy anymore that's totally possible and so, fairly uh, recent breakthroughs into cryo storage as well yeah so yeah um i agree with you a lot of this stuff makes a i mean the helicarriers are a bit <laughs> ridiculous when you think about them too much but imagine but, that the helicarriers are battleships and then suddenly true. it's yeah. totally real yeah exactly. or just really big satellites Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So how has the character of Steve Rogers developed since the 1940s incarnation? And you can include Avengers and uh, the deleted scenes from the Avengers, if you wish, in this. Because there was some Steve stuff. He's very isolated. Mm. Um, and, And like I said, that's not just through the passage of time, I don't think. Um, He does a lot of... um, coming to terms with how his ideals and the things that he always wanted have had to change. Mm. Because he got what he wanted and it didn't turn out the way he expected it to. Mm. Um, and so he's had to uh, to reevaluate and reassess. And I think if you look at the way he... Um, uh, when he takes the mic, when they... Uh, going back into the shield uh, Triskelion and tells everybody what's going on he's basically doing what he did with the war bonds he's he's 
using himself as a figurehead. He's using the fact that people know his voice and know who he is to convey trustworthiness and um, to inspire people to try and fight back. But he's doing it in such a genuine and authentic way that it's basically just a case of putting it there and saying to them, I will be I will be fighting this. I will be standing up to this. It is entirely up to you guys whether you will stand with me or not. One of the things that I've I really love what they did is that no matter they've carried on the whole his distrust of Shield and uh, Nick Fury in particular from yeah. the Avengers, the fact that at every single turn he's still running into things where they're not telling him everything. The fact that he makes a point of saying that one of the main reasons I stayed with S.H.I.E.L.D. is knowing that you've helped found it and it was built upon something that built upon the ideals of someone they know is quite intimately is yeah. one of the only reasons he's still there. A long time I just wanted to do what was right. I'm not quite sure what that means anymore. The world has changed. None of us can go back. All we can do is our best. That scene was so heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad. Oh I'm, yes, I'm right so, at the end as well. I'm so glad that scene was in the movie, and it was the kind of stuff that I was hoping would be in the Avengers. Um, mm. That and when I, you know, in retrospect, I think okay, there wasn't enough time for that kind of content in the Avengers. Yeah. It makes sense to save it for the sequel. But yeah, that scene, I, I think they played it just right because <laughs> I, I, I did feel myself tearing up towards the end of that because so m- like for him, it's been like a flash and he's back. But for her, it's been so long. She's not just grieved for him. She's gotten used to the idea that he's dead and moved on. Yeah. <laughs> and now he's back. That, like that kind of thing must just. Oh, it just throw you for a loop emotionally, and it, yeah, it, it was such a great scene. One of my favourite scenes in the movie, in fact. Me too. Uh, and you get that glimpse of like when you start the scene, it's as if oh they've reconnected, they've obviously talked, but right at the end where it, uh, dementia essentially sets in, you just have that heartbroken moment where he knows he can never really have a connection with her anymore because she can't fully remember what they went through and every single time their time together gets reset in their mind for a period that's the really hard uh, aspect of um, having a, a, somebody close to you get very very old the lack of permanence mm. when you speak to them and all they can really say is hello and uh, you know that whatever you say <laughs> It kind of doesn't matter because they'll have forgotten it in a few minutes. Oh god, that's horrible. Okay, moving on, shall we? Um, I think you mentioned it before regarding Sam, but the uh, the point where they bond on uh, Sam just asks him uh, about his bed and the fact that he can't sleep on it because it's like a marshmallow. He doesn't even ask; he just states. He yeah. knows exactly how it is. Your bed's too soft, isn't it? Yeah. That was a really, really neat bit. One, one of the interesting things is the whole conversations him and Black Widow keep having, having about whether he's planning to go out with anybody. You can see he's 
definitely in that sort. He's very conflicted about it, and when it seems like he's sort of got this thing going on with his neighbour, he believes, and this the look of hurt he gets when he finds out she's just been an agent that's watching him this whole time. Yeah. Everything keeps getting yanked out from under him. Yeah. He's very much in conflict with being Captain America, this symbol, and being Steve Rogers, this normal guy who was given such an amazing opportunity and has been thrust into a world that he wasn't prepared for, to be honest. I, I just just connected to what you're saying um, Jerome, I love the way that they paint Nick Fury as such a morally ambiguous character in this movie, when you find out he's bugged Captain America's apartment and also he's got an agent right next door yeah. keeping an eye on him, it's like Nick, <laughs> okay um, That I mean ultimately he proves to be a heroic character but um, there are a couple of scenes there where you're really doubting his authority in those situations like hmm, I don't know if I really trust somebody who uh, is listening to everything I'm doing at every moment, it's a bit unsettling. Yeah, not only is it a story about uh, Captain America it's also a story about Nick Fury and like you get a glimpse into his past and the fact that being who he is, if any, if he's ever suspicious of anything, he's ready to shut it down immediately with the whole uh, project insight. The moment he realize he gets a feeling that he might, he himself is compromised. He wants the whole project to be shut down because he doesn't want that risk because he's been, he's gone through so much that he says to himself, "You see, you see, this is the reason why I have trust issues." <laughs> the the Hydra hiding within Shield was yes. flagged in the Avengers when Steve goes snooping around and finds the Hydra suits. Uh, it, oh, yeah. It's it is um it's straightforward in terms of well they they uh, reverse engineered the tech so we understand and we comprehend and we think well that's a Shades of Grey scenario. Uh, I don't know whether they decided from that that would make a really great movie. Yeah, it's also interesting because it plays into stuff that historically happened as well. Because I can't remember if it was actually called Project Paperclip or not, but you know, the US did recruit Nazi, Nazi scientists. scientists. Yeah, yeah. The I- irony is, had the Nazis not been so intent on killing all Jewish people, had they recruited their best scientists, they might have won. So thank God they were complete fucking racists. <laughs> it, I have to admit, it, it amused me when at one point um, they referred to Hydra as um, a, a band of rogue Nazi scientists. <laughs> yeah. Like, the Nazis aren't rogue enough already for you. You had to be more extreme. I don't like the term rogue in this point. It makes them seem roguish. What actually made me think is, oh, because we, you know, from watching the first one, you know they're not, well, they are rogue, but they're not just a group of scientists. They were a major part of the army, so it's like, it, it felt like, oh, they were rewriting history a bit there. Or, was I the only one who thought But then that. this is, this is the thing about sort of the implication of secret societies, isn't it? I mean, it's like whenever anybody starts introducing the Templars into anything or, uh, they have troops as well. The Illuminati. It's the, the, the whole point of these, organizations is that they have fingers in all the pies um and uh, i mean even you look at at the uh, political structure that we've got in this country the fact that the people on the top of of our political umbrella all went to school together 
they may not call themselves anything specific, or at least not out in the open where people can hear them, but they are a network of people who all know each other and, and who all have the same um, ideals and, and what they're working towards. And and I'm, I'm aware of the fact that I've basically just compared the Conservative Party to... The Freemasons. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's a, a similar concept, albeit on a much more um, fictionalised and... and um, uh, narrative-driven basis. Yeah. Uh, actually, um, speaking of the Black Widow trying to arrange dates for Steve, Sharon, you had a theory about Steve Rogers. Um, I did. I wasn't going to mention it in the podcast because it makes me sound fixated. Um, it's a good thing. <laughs> and well, it especially, okay. it makes you go, wow, by the end of the film. Right. Basically, I think Steve Rogers is still a virgin because in the first Captain America film, he says as much to Peggy when they're in the car. Um, he, he says he just, you know, never got round to asking anybody to go dancing with him. And Steve doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would skip the preliminaries. Um, True, actually, yeah. Was... Uh, I'm not doing anything unless I dance with you. And then we've got to discuss marriage. Yeah, exactly. And then <laughs> he got frozen for yeah. decades. The right um, dancing part then... come along. Indeed. Then um, he had to so stop an alien invasion. Exactly. He's got this big thing about waiting for the right person. He's not immediately going to get out of deep freeze and go find the first hooker in Times Square. Precisely. Yeah, yeah I, I, I had the same theory as well. He, I think he is a virgin. Whoa. So. That's a rare thing in this day and age, and possibly something that could come up in Captain America 3 or even Avengers 2. Hey, if that information becomes public, they will be queuing round the block. That is a fine point. Remember how uh, freaked out he was when uh, Marjorie Tyrrell tried to uh, uh, lock lips with him? In oh, America? yeah. <laughs> She'd scare anybody, frankly. Yeah. You can't trust her because of those yeah. duplicitous eyes. Um, so anyway, what seems more prominent with Natasha this time? How has her character changed? She seems um, <laughs> human in this one for a start. She yeah. does. One, one of the things that seemed really prominent to me this time actually um and this we were t- discussing this when we were talking about the the relative um flaws of the avengers team mm. oh and yeah, how you had a good you theory could... on that one as well yeah well one of the ways in which uh, joss whedon constructs a good team he does this with the firefly squad and he he does it with avengers as well is that um you can identify them by their character flaws it is really effective in preventing anybody becoming a Mary Sue. Even if everything about them is marvellous, there will be something that's very specifically um, the way that they will um, mess their own sequence of events up and stop things from going right for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And Natasha's has always struck me as being... um, There's a line in Preacher where... um, her star is talking about how you take on a squad of terrorists and he says kill the women first if there are any females in this terrorist squad they will have had to work three times as hard as their male counterparts to uh, get where they are they will be more intelligent stronger uh, they will be better shots um Basically, everything about them will be superior to everybody else around them just to stand where they're standing. Yeah. So take them out first. And that's how Natasha's always come across to me, that basically she's been through her whole life trying to prove herself. 
um, not necessarily to the people around her, but to herself. And um, when she goes, uh, when she has the conversation with Loki in the Avengers, um, the thing about her that she seems the most unhappy about is her ability to be made scared. It, it, it freaks her out when she's uh, in that tight corners with the uh, with the Hulk as well. Yeah. Um, and she can't control her fear of something that she can't control herself. Exactly, she's a complete control freak in in the sense that she must always be holding all the strings um and that came across even more so um in this film mm, definitely when there was the whole fear there was that fear of all of her past deeds being laid out for everybody to see the fact that she's been she spent so long uh maintaining this persona of being just like nobody know only a few select people are allowed to know who she really is and the fact that other like your average general could find out about there really sets in a a fear for her mm, yeah but i mean you look at how um when she has that conversation with steve in the car and he basically says to to her who are you really and her response is who do you want me to be also, when she says, I only pretend that I know everything, it, yes. she specifically, <laughs> that is specifically how she presents herself as if she can never be surprised by something. Yeah. But I think the most, um, trusting act from her in the film is, um, when they're in the conference room at the end and she, uh, basically widows bites herself in mm-hmm. order to short out the, um, uh, the lapel um, device yeah. uh, that's potentially going to kill her. She is rendering herself inert and unable to participate in the firefight that will inevitably follow. She is trusting Nick um, to be able to settle that situation without her assistance. Well, it's it's clear that um, in this movie, more than any other, the Black Widow has a lot of respect for Nick Fury. And uh, when she thinks he's dead, like that—that's not just the death of your boss. That's that's the death of a family member to her. Mm. And um, yeah, it makes sense that out of all the characters in this movie, she would have a lot of trust in Nick Fury, despite the fact that Nick Fury, <laughs> in a lot of ways, is not a very trustworthy character. Um, but this yeah. just occurred to me when you said that. Um... There probably aren't that many people on Earth who know who Natasha really is. Yeah. Deep down, there's Clint, there's uh, Nick, and maybe Coulson. So, the idea of Nick dying, especially when she was very concerned that Clint might die as well, if they and get lost Coulson, yeah, and they lost was in on Coulson. It. Otherwise. Um, I'm surprised he didn't make an appearance, actually. Imagine all three of those people get taken off the planet and there was the threat of that for, for all of them. Who Who is Natasha at that point? If no one's around who knows who she really is? I don't even think Natasha knows. Exactly. So she needs them as anchors. It jumps from Steve getting away from uh, the Triskelon to uh, Steve finding Natasha in the hospital and then going to the mall and she's instructing him in, in the mall uh, of uh, you know public displays of affection 
and it sounds like he's from Mars or something. Like, she's explaining to him, like, cultural mores. Uh, I just don't know how he could get to the hospital and still remain uh, undercover if he didn't sort of stride around in 1940s gear. There, there seems to be a, some sort of disparity between his spy abilities uh, that we don't see and the spy abilities that we do see. He's not think really he's a spy, not, though. Exactly. He's, yeah. a, he's soldier. a soldier. When he There's approaches... things he's picked up yeah. through, like, comp in combat and just engaging in people but he's not used to the psychology of social norms and whatnot. Yeah. I mean to us it would like yeah anybody seeing a public display of affection you're kind of likely to turn away but yeah. you don't think of doing that as a way to throw off an enemy yeah yeah that I was going to say when the uh, the Hydra agents first approach them in the mall Cap, uh, uh, Cap starts listing out a bunch of tactics and orders to Natasha. He's like, okay, you do this. If they approach us, I'll do this. You do that. Blah, blah, blah. And Natasha's like, no, just stop. Let's just hug and yeah. laugh and walk past. Because Natasha knows how to stay hidden. Cap knows how to fight people. That's his uh, his specialty. Um, and, it, and I think it was a great scene too because it showed the thing, the aspects of um, Natasha's character that actually make her more... Um, not more important, just the, the skills that she has that Cap doesn't have. I think it was an important scene to demonstrate mm. that there are certain areas where Natasha is more skilled than Captain America. He absolutely could it's, not have got to the end without her. Yeah. It's similar to the whole scene in Avengers with her conversation with Loki. Mm. Nobody else could have thought or pulled off that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Drive is a level six homing program, so as soon as we boot up, she'll know exactly where we are. How much time will we have? Uh, about nine minutes from now. This drive is protected by some sort of AI. It keeps rewriting itself to counter my commands. Can you override it? The person who developed this is slightly smarter than me. Slightly. Try running a tracer. This is a program that she'll develop to track hostile malware. So, if we can't read the file, maybe we can find out where it came from. Can I help you guys with anything? Oh no, my fiance was just helping me with some honeymoon destinations. Right, we're getting married. Congratulations. Where are you guys thinking about going? New Jersey. Huh? I have the exact same glasses. Wow, you two are practically twins. Yeah, I wish. Specimen. Uh, if you guys need anything, I've been Aaron. Thank you. Give me a floor rundown. Negative on three. You said nine minutes, come on. Relax. Got it. You know it? I used to. Let's go. And how is Nick Fury humanized? He's he's made vulnerable, yeah. Very much like the people you see, he puts well, not so much trust in, but sort of he's aligned with betray him, mm. and for a moment you think he's actually died. Mm. I mean, you see a full squad predict almost every move they plan to make. Yeah, 
They make they make him vulnerable, but they also demonstrate exactly why he is the leader of Shield in this yeah. movie more so than any of the other movies before. Yeah. Like he comes off as an extremely capable tactician throughout this movie. Um, that that scene in the car where he's just waiting for the perfect. Mi- moment to attack the enemy and pulling off all this moves ultimately he has to run away but the fact that he holds his own for that long against that many soldiers and against the winter soldier is really impressive and he's just a normal human being at the end of the day and he still got away a really intense scene highlighted that their action ethos scenes like that and uh, the scene where uh, cap first met the winter soldier Everything filmed out in the street reminded me of Heat and The Dark Knight. Mm. Yes. Yeah. It's almost like this has more in common with The Dark Knight than it does with Avengers. Oh, I'd say that, definitely. Uh, especially it being a political movie, and The Dark Knight has quite a lot of politics in it as well. Yeah, I, yeah I'd definitely say this is closer to the Nolan movies. It still has that Avengers charm, though, peppered throughout. And, and I think that you need that because that's the identity yeah. of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it's yeah. balanced then. Yeah. yeah. The Marvel movies are now dividing audiences uh, and critics specifically. Um, the, the critics who aren't fans of the Marvel films tend to say, dismissively so, oh, Marvel movie fans will all love it. They'll lap up all of these little references that I'm not getting and that's uh, fair enough. Fine. Uh, but there's a certain amount of derisiveness in their tone, in a kind of, um, well, no, I appreciate movies with real structure to them. You know, this is all, uh, I mean, Mark Kermode, for example, was, was fairly dismissive of this one. And uh, that's a damn shame, because at its core, this is actually a really solid movie. Well, this is kind of what I meant with the um, with the intro bit. It's so easy for your standard film critic to dismiss the acting in this. Um, the the scripting is very tight in places. Um, the uh, the plot construction, um, the set design. There's so much in it that if you um, get hung up on the idea that this is a big comic book action movie it's very easy to ignore all the stuff about it that's really really good on its own merits Mm. I don't see for some reason why Dark Knight gets away with it and and this doesn't Nolan yeah Yeah. maybe so these guys are not established fuck you may be right Shannon that's miserable Mm-hmm. If somebody, an established director, had directed, say Scorsese had directed this, the fucking critics wouldn't be able to climb out of his ass fast enough. It's snobbishness when it comes down to it. Into his ass fast enough. <laughs> Either way, stuff's going in and out of Scorsese's ass. There is. I'm sure amount- he'll be thrilled to know that. You're right, though. There is an amount of snobbishness simply because there's been so many superheroes in the past 15 years. So many superhero movies, it's become a genre unto itself. And the critics have become wary of the fact that when they say, well, I didn't get this about it, then people sort of retort angrily, well, you haven't read the comics, so you won't know. To which they get even more defensive and say, well, I'm not supposed to read the comics, I'm a movie critic. To which point they're almost reflexively now dismissing films and going, well, I don't read the comics, so I don't really get it. Just judge it on its own merits. It's actually really good. Okay, so I've done the action bit. Um, Okay, here's a question. How effective could Armin Zola be as a computer in the 70s? <laughs> Dangerously so. The, what struck me with that scene was 
you look at all of those um, reel-to-reel machines that contain all of his memory, all of his abilities, mm-hmm. you could get all of that on an iPhone now. Yeah, <laughs> an Almanzola app. <laughs> Although, See, I, I love that. I, I did squeeze that moment as a comic book fan. That was like, kind of close. Yeah, the reason why I sort of saw this coming, it's not because the comic books, it's because I played the Captain America game ah. when it came out and he appeared as a giant robot with a C- CRT TV chest. Nice. <laughs> so I was, I was waiting for that to happen. I'm kind of glad they didn't go giant robot. Though. Yeah. I am glad they went with the... Oh, evidently the one thing they didn't upload into there was his, uh, his morals or his conscience. <laughs> Because he seemed um, a lot more evil than he was in the first one. Well, he was still a part he... of Hydra. The thing is, the Red Skull was about as evil as anyone could possibly be. So even if you're a member of Hydra, you still go, hmm, that Red Skull, he's a bit intense. But, like, <laughs> he, he's, he's still a member of Hydra. So at the end of the day, his morals are still in line with their philosophy. Um, it just felt that he, 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 if you watch like the first film, he doesn't feel like he belongs there. He seems slightly cowardly and not that evil. But I suppose, yeah, you've got a point. He still works for Hydra. Yeah, that's the point to me. In that in that first film, he's kind of this moral vacuum. He's there because it's giving him scientific opportunities. And he's there because he's looking at it in terms of research. And he is conveniently shutting off the part of his brain that is aware of the fact that for him to get these scientific opportunities, lots and lots of people are having to die. I actually think making him a computer kind of makes perfect sense because a computer is a moral vacuum. It doesn't make choices based on, on whether something is ethical or not. It works out data. Hmm. I love the idea of them uncovering, like, Indiana Jones, this um, ancient... Well, actually, because no, Indiana Jones doesn't work. Like uh, Uncharted or... Say, it happened in Lost, actually. Um, the sort of uncovering old tech that can then speak to you in a manner that, um, I mean, we've had HAL 9000 for decades now, and the idea that using 70s tech to replicate that kind of thing is really compelling and fun in in a kind of... uh, It's kind of like asking people who made sci-fi movies in the 70s to ground their vision, and rather than doing stuff like uh, uh, that giant tinfoil robot in Logan's run going, okay, now, what would a computer be able to do now? See, what one of the little things I like to think of is, how long did it take to try and connect that mini USB port to Zoleg? Yeah. you got to install DOS, then you got to back install <laughs> DOS. A more important question is how they then managed to make that memory stick work in a Mac. Yeah. Yeah, when they were in the, in the, in the Mac store, that doesn't happen. <laughs> right. And uh, actually, uh, leading on from that, how suitable, and we've already sort of answered this, but it's a question if you want to re-reference it, how suitable as villains or antagonists are Hydra in 2014? Or another way of putting it is, how did they have to change to actually be scary now? Just they put them to- everywhere. Make it clear that they are in every organization that they are senators and bankers and teachers and soldiers 
they turn them into Cylons, basically, in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, oh, God, sleeper agent. Yeah. They look they, like you. <laughs> yeah. They're they, hidden amongst us. They could be your neighbour. They could be your best friend. That's why they're terrifying. And that because, paranoia destabilises the very people that you're tr- they're trying to mess with. The idea being that if, if no one can trust anybody else on their t- side, that makes them so much easier to manipulate. And what did you personally expect from Maria Hill? Did you expect her to be Hydra? Did you expect her to be an accessory? Did you expect her to be killed off? Did you expect her to be in the sidelines? Or did you expect this? Given the history of the character, I did assume that it would be revealed uh, that she was behind it all. There was a point... Because just the way they were... They were framing her after Nick's death. Mm. But there was just a way they shot her. It was like she's always on the sidelines and they only ever put her in focus at like right at the end of the scene as if to go keep an eye on this one. She might, uh, she might surprise you, but it turns out she's, you know, a good guy. But honestly, I'm glad they did that because it further, um, Incre- you know, increase those thoughts in my mind that maybe Robert Redford is actually the good guy, and I'm viewing this from the wrong perspective. Yeah, um, it was clever. I-, I think it was a clever way of just keeping the audience on their toes. If you ask uh, who benefits from any great crime, well, the uh, director of Shield goes down. The new director of Shield benefits rather heavily. Yeah. yeah. However. Well- that, in part, was one of the things that made me fairly certain I could trust her, in that Nick would have been responsible for her being in the position that she's in. He's not responsible for Robert Redford being in the position he's in, therefore that one's questionable. And I kind of like the fact that you've got this sort of a little team within S.H.I.E.L.D. that you know is sort of like a constant, like Nick Fury's the go-to people. Shooters. Maria Hill, Coulson, Natasha, and and Hawkeye, yep. They're they're the four people, like, they know more than they should, because he wants them to know more. Yeah. I honestly expected her to be, because they were uh, hiding in the um, trailers uh, exactly who the uh, chief antagonist was, because obviously it's a thriller and it's it's, uh, a mystery, and um, and they did that extremely proficiently. There's even one point where... um, uh, Robert Redford's uh, character Pierce says, uh, "You've helped shape the 20th century." And I was thinking, is he talking to Cap there? He's actually talking to the Winter Soldier in the final film. But I thought that Hill might be a major antagonist for uh, Steve because, as if you've read Civil War, she becomes Director of Shield in, in Fury's absence, and he has to go up against her and, and butt heads with her and there's that brilliant bit where he busts out of the helicarrier so it's possible we'll see that at some point but in the meantime um, uh, Hill had to establish herself as a straight shooter and not just a duplicitous uh, someone to be gotten rid of as soon as possible I mean, in fact I'm actually I'm really really glad they didn't because it means that we get to carry on with this you know, really excellent female character. See, I never got... It, she, 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 strike, she always struck me as being very Nick Fury-esque, only she's usually the opposite of whatever Nick Fury wants. She goes the other way, but they both seem very similar. So I'm not surprised that she wasn't with Hydra in this film. I think they've got to build her up. I think you have to build her up more as a straight shooter, as the as being dependable, as being a good second-in-command. So should anything 
happen, she takes over, it makes sense. Mm. I also like the idea that she's a hard ass as well. She's not just virtuous. She's almost too stubborn to go over to Hydra. Hmm. They almost wouldn't want her. That, actually, one thing that struck me while I was watching them, there are very few women in Hydra. There are almost none. Mm. There are of all the people who came forward as Hydra members, I think there are two women, and they're both in the black dressed hit squad uh, that march in to take over the helicarrier. I didn't even notice them, so. <laughs> and that's in almost deliberate contrast to the fact that um, uh, one of the things I commented on when we were watching Avengers the other day, in the control room of the helicarrier, it looks like there are. It's about 50-50, isn't it? Uh, it's, I think it's about a 50-50 split. It looks like there are a lot more women than men running the helicarrier because we're so accustomed to seeing a crowd which is predominantly male yeah. that when it's a 50-50 split, it looks like it's predominantly female. But they've carried that through, and in the shield control rooms, there were lots of women doing jobs. But in the Hydra uh, rooms, it was all men. But again, we've got a really great uh, action thriller with three quality female uh, uh, characters uh, running throughout and um, strong and resourceful. And also, none of them a love interest as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I know, I, I know, uh, Natasha kisses uh, Captain America, but that's only intended as a way of uh, protecting him. It's really a platonic relationship between the two of them. Which I, I really liked. Yeah, it's a very platonic relationship. She spends most of the film trying to set him up with other people. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, what did you think of Sam Wilson, the Falcon, the new face? So new, so awesome, he wasn't even on the poster. Dude should be on the poster. He yeah. was really good in this film. And I know... He, I, I love what they did with the Falcon in this film. Because if you want a rough idea of how the Falcon normally looks, you know the, do you know the opening to Kick-Ass? Yes. That's pretty much it. I quite like this get-up that he had. It, it made it believable and it fit in with that character. I also like the fact that he, 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 he goes, um, I thought you flew. I never said I was a pilot. Nice. Yeah. I, I, I also really liked that he was very well integrated into the plot of the movie. It never felt like they threw him in just because, oh, we need to add another character to the Avengers roster. Let's just, oh, yeah, Falcon. Yeah, he'll do. Like, like it was X-Men Origins Wolverine, where they did <laughs> yeah. that with almost every character in that Oh, film. here's Gambit. Here's the blob. It, it here's it was important that Captain America had somebody outside of S.H.I.E.L.D. that he could trust, that he could hide away from all the agents hunting him from. Like, th that relationship was more than, let's see this cool guy with wings fly about and shoot stuff. Mm. He was essential to the plot, and I really appreciated that. One of the great things they did is, like, if you think about it, the timeline sort of, sort of uh, lines up with the fact that around the time Stark Industries got out of the weapon business was the time that this person in sort of like a prototype stage of a uh, combat team yeah. lost his partner. 
and sort of started losing his faith in the system, in his military system. And he'd be like one of the few people who could get access to that experimental flight suit. It did feel, uh, as I said, um, uh, a lot like an Iron Man suit, only without the armor, without the uh, armaments, without the tracking systems. Well, without Jarvis. <laughs> maneuverability yeah. without Jarvis, without all of that stuff that Stark had. So it, the, the action sequences fe- featuring him, I, I did kind of feel, hang on, this is a step back from what we saw back in 2008. Although I really like the Falcon character. But ultimately, if you're going to introduce him after Iron Man, there's no way you can not be suffering from the same scenario unless you add to his character significantly. So what they did, and that was the right thing to do, is flesh him out and make him likable and someone you actually want to see on screen more. He actually reminded me... Um, uh, Mackie... Uh, what's his surname? Uh, Anthony Mackie reminded me of a young Will Smith around about circa um, Independence Day, say. Yeah. Slightly yeah. prior to his, his um, like post. Actually, no, because uh, Anthony Mackie doesn't have this swagger brought on by being in uh, Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Maybe during his um, Six Degrees of Separation. Do you ever see that? No. Smith no. is good in that. But yeah, it, uh, he. Uh, if you actually watch him in interviews, he has that same kind of energy to him, and uh, I definitely want to watch. He's not just roadie either. The dynamic between oh God, him and Steve is is very different from the dynamic between um, uh, Tony and um, and Rhodey. Although it, it it could be very easy to draw parallels in the sense that they're both directly military um, and that they're you know they're both supporting their friends. Um, but uh, I I think the whole thing about the tech feeling a little bit reminiscent of a. a stripped down Iron Man suit mm. actually makes it feel more like part of the world because that does make sense that although um, Tony has refused point blank to actually mass market anything that's very similar to the Iron Man suits I think him putting elements of it in other aspects of what Stark produces mm. um, would make perfect sense you, you couldn't not do that that's where your uh, your money comes from you've got to use it to maintain your company somehow or he would go broke very quickly I would say I think it is important to point out that the one benefit the Falcon suit has over the Iron Man suit <laughs> is if that thing runs out of fuel he's not going to immediately crash to the floor <laughs> yeah. he can it has a parachute Actually, yeah. yeah, he did seem a lot more flexible and a lot more able to uh, uh, manoeuvre when he was uh, running around on the deck before he went jumping off. Um, but I was at the same time very, very worried for him because, I mean, his arms were bare, his head was it's, bare. It was like, it's clear. shoot him. It's clear because the pilot is so vulnerable, essentially manoeuvrability was a key factor for it. Yeah. Whereas with the Iron Man armour, because you're in a suit of armour, you can allow for certain possibilities yeah uh when you uh when he actually first turned up um and, and uh, uh yanked on your left yeah uh, no actually when he, when he first turned up in the falcon gear <laughs> i was like what and you I, I said you've seen him as falcon on, on one of the posters and she said yeah but what was your exact wording i never knew that the the suit was going to be really cool <laughs> I honestly can't remember what I said. <laughs> it was something along those lines, so clearly they did something right. 
I'm a big fan of mecha- mechanical wings. Oh yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there were there were like a hundred ways they could have fucked up on that, um, and they didn't. They really that was extremely uh, well realized and just about managed to stay bolted down in the uh, the universe. You can imagine some sort of wingsuit in a uh, technological thriller that still didn't quite go into sci-fi. I work 40 floors away, and it takes a hijacking for you to visit. Well, a nuclear war would do it, too. Busy in there? Nothing some earmarks can't fix. I'm uh, here to ask a favor. I want you to call for a vote. Project Insight has to be delayed. Nick, it's not a favor. That's a subcommittee hearing, a long one. Could be nothing. Probably is nothing. I just need time to make sure it's nothing. Fine. But you gotta get Iron Man to stop by my niece's birthday party. Thank you, sir. Not just a flyby. He's gotta mingle. What do you think Robert Redford's Alexander Pierce, his key motivations were? Because I read earlier today that he was possessed by Arnim Zola. Do you think that was actually the case? Was that made clear? No, not not no. Three words. Fear of chaos. Oh, yeah? yeah? Everything about the Hydra plan everything about um, the stories from his old life that Pierce told, which we have no reason to believe were not true, uh, all pointed towards being in utter horror of the prospect of not knowing what the future was going to hold. Especially when he takes the um, experience he had with Nick Fury himself when he told Nick not to go in and Nick went himself, he's taking that twisted idea of sometimes you have to go against the grain to get results he's taking that and twisted into such a horrendous idea that he's willing to do anything for what he perceives to be the greater good yeah exactly like greater good he he thinks he's creating a utopia by um uh, you know, it's the 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 masses uh, outweigh the individual essentially, and he's getting rid of the people he considers problematic, so that uh, the people he considers to be good can live in a perfect world. Now, I I you know I don't need to point out how incredibly you know flawed that concept is because of you know your concept of a good person is yours alone and it also doesn't account for the fact that people change so drastically over even a five-year period that you would just it wouldn't stop at that 20 million people he was going to exterminate uh that day or that that week or what have you it would have been a constant cull every day every year or something like that it's just amazing to me like it's completely insane his plan i mean but it comes from something that is understandable within this world i don't think it is completely and utterly without logic it well, well, it is, but I. You could you know write it I, down on a piece of paper, and, and a boardroom full of directors would nod and say, "Well, if we must do this, then exactly it, it, that's we, what the it, results yeah. are." And you could have 
a, a, a sheet of predicted results of it yeah. that seem relatively realistic. And you can work this out on paper. It's the execution, pardon the pun, that suddenly it becomes incredibly problematic. Even and like I said, that stands in direct opposition to this idea of um, the important thing being the people. From the helicarriers, they are, they are not looking at people. They are looking at names and target symbols on a screen. Even the way he tries to convince one of the board members that, say, if your daughter got kidnapped, wouldn't you like to have a flying death gun in the sky to shoot them down? And you just think, I'm sorry, but just in that one situation, yes, it would be nice to stop there immediately, but that could also easily be aimed at my daughter. Mm. Yeah. Because she's a perceived threat down well, on the line. Th- th- this is where the film's very heavy liberal leanings come from. It is, yeah. you know, I mean, th- there are a lot of principles that um, come with uh, liberal policies, but I think at the core of it, uh, more than anything else, liberalism is about giving the you know people the power to disagree with the people in you know in control um giving people the power to say no i don't believe that's right let's change things whereas they're creating a society where all the rules and all the things that are deemed good are judged by one person um which goes against everything that uh, liberal politics is about um, well it's like the the um i'm paraphrasing here from the the late great tony ben but who are you how did you get your power and how can we take it away from you hydra are the exact opposite of that we don't know who they are they got their power by nefarious and mysterious means and we don't have the ability to take it away from them i i i do like one of the most it's a little joke the fact that they make a point of stating that bruce banner is one of their key targets and you just have an idea of what what would happen in that situation is it (laughs) Yeah, don't but they think a giant gun is going to stop Bruce Banner. I actually mentioned that to Sharon, and uh, uh, she said, chances are the algorithm would just sort through these two million names. No human is looking through the list. And exactly. Banner would be on it, the, the, it, he'd get shot, and the other guy would spit the yep. bullet out. Back at the helicarrier. <laughs> no, you just... Devastation. <laughs> You'd have a similar situation in the Avengers when that pilot decides he's going to shoot the Hulk. But yeah, the unfortunate thing is, two million other people would be killed during this dreadful mistake. One of them being Tony Stark, because his name was on the list. But it's it's very much as if they because it's an algorithm, they haven't taken into account like the fact that these people have changed from where they were at the point when well, exactly. they first picked them out as targets. Yeah. Well, one of them could be the president of the United States. They could end exactly. up with a one terrible, terrible the fucking president, president of the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pres- president Ellis was on the list. Oh, fucking hell. Yeah, okay, well, I suppose that's a fairly strong statement of we are now in control. Mm. Okay. Uh, so, why does the Winter Soldier work so well as an antagonist? Because he's so attached to Steve's past, the fact that this is his friend that he felt went missing. They make it a fact of saying he's the only one who gave his life in their whole squad. And the fact that this is weighed upon him. And when he finds out that this is Bucky and Bucky doesn't even... 
you can tell he's his mind is unraveled. He's been frozen. He's been put through so many torturous experiments, and he's literally just a weapon at this point. He's even more sympathetic as a character than than Loki. Loki's a very yeah. sympathetic character, but you know all of his actions are of his, his own, of yeah. his making. He makes poor choices. Yeah. Whereas the Winter Soldier is not entirely responsible. Well, he's not responsible for a lot of his actions. Every time he starts to make a choice, they go, right, that, that's the choice you're starting to make there. Let's put you back in the chair. He's a victim. He's yeah. not an antagonist. He's a victim. But, uh, and he's the biggest victim of this movie. Um, um, and I, I, what, one thing I really appreciated about him is that he's a very different kind of villain than Marvel have um, approached before. I, most of the villains they've um, done so far have either been manipulators like Loki or just so evil. Like the Dark I don't even remember. Malekith, is it? Yeah, um, Malekith, yeah. the unhosed. It's just so two-dimensionally black. That you found another dimension in there? I just found a, a flat plane. <laughs> it's like most Christopher Eccleston performances. Oh, Christopher Eccleston has done good performances. Twenty-eight days later, Shallow I, Grave. I, I, I don't blame Christopher Eccleston for the that character. It, it was written as a yeah. one-dimensional character. If Rafe Fiennes, who has been fantastic as Voldemort, had done the exact same character, he'd have had nothing to work with. Yeah. All right. I'll be fair. That's true. Yeah. I just like. Poking fun at Chris Bowers. Speaking of Ray Fiennes, we watched Clash of the Titans the other day, oh. and Lyra immediately recognised Ray Fiennes because he was just doing Voldemort. Uh, he read the script and said, "I can't be us." Uh, basically, <laughs> is what I think happened. Release oh. the Kraggle. Anyway, I need a new car. <laughs> yes, I'll do that. The 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 kind of villain that the Winter Soldier reminded me of most was the Terminator, mm. especially mm. in the first movie. He was just this relentless machine that would not stop until the target was eliminated. Um, and there's something really scary about a, a, a um, an enemy you can't reason with because there's nothing there other than the mission. Like, there's nothing in his head other than the objective he needs to accomplish. You've got the cyborg and, arm. Yeah. And it's clear that they... they were intentionally trying to keep him away from facing Captain America because obviously that is a key trigger to any sort of recall of who he is. That's why it's only when they need to get rid of him, they force, they intensify his reprogramming to go after him to try and force that, that part of recall out of him. Speaking of recall, uh, this actually relates to something we did fairly recently. Bucky the Winter Soldier is Robocop if he obeyed his programming yeah he is if, yes. if controlled by a corporate entity or, or a supremely right wing uh, fascist movement and just directed to uh, uh, exterminate whoever he was expected to exterminate eliminating all humanity he's what Robocop was intended to be and I'll go you one further he is who Cap could be in the wrong hands if Steve did not stand up for what he actually believed in yeah, that's that's essentially what they've been trying to make all these years, trying to recreate the Super Soldier Serum. They've been trying to make Winter Soldiers. Mm. Even Emil Blonsky, Blonsky in um, yeah, even Emil Blonsky in the Incredible Hulk 
made his own decisions mm-hmm. and actually went um, off the grid and, and, and went crazy and, and, and became too power hungry um, and th- thus was um, much less of a sympathetic character simply because he, he was just a, a sponge absorbing power and that's all his character arc was but um, there's something horrifyingly tragic about what happened to Bucky Sharon, carry on I think what made him uh, such a, a brilliant antagonist for me was uh, the, the, the action in this, the fights in this. Every single fight between Steve and the Winter Soldier meant something. And they were normally when I'm watching action movies I'm always vaguely conscious that there's a point at which I start to lose interest and it's you know you're showing me big explosions and people hitting each other but it doesn't really mean anything to me but because I knew who he was because I knew what his connection with Steve was every time they went up against each other my heart was in my mouth because it was like at what point is Steve going to realise who he is and what they've done to his friend and that, I, I got the impression that Hydra didn't really know how close Steve and Bucky had been. Obviously, they would know that he used to be a Howling Commando, and therefore the, the history books would tell them that there had been, um, you know, that they had worked together. But they wouldn't necessarily know that their history went back years; that they had been friends, you know, back when Steve was just a little a little kid. Um, and so that that sense of them really not caring not caring to the point of not knowing and not being interested what the, the backstory and the history were and that every time as you say there was a, even a flash of recognition or um, a, a desire to make any of his own decisions um, in their soldier they would just burn it out of him yeah. and that happening over and over again makes him so tragic that it's it's almost painful to watch him fighting and and when we last saw uh, captain america the other day i was watching sebastian stan to see how he changed the character within the course of that film because obviously we now know that things were done to him in that that were the start of all of this and it's it's there you can see it he's not the same bucky at the end of that film as he is at the beginning He's changed, and he carries that change through into um, Cap 2, which impressed me greatly. And Sebastian Stan is really fit as well, which doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Strange enough, Sharon said the same thing. The other great thing is the conflict it creates in Rogers um, at several points in the movie. There's nothing worse than having to fight a friend, because he doesn't want to have to beat the shit out of um uh, out of the winter soldier because like deep down he wants to try and convince him what he's doing is wrong and he should come with him and you know join the avengers or what have you like he he doesn't want to fight this guy and that sequence at the end that fight sequence at the end is is really powerful because you know all the way through that Cap would rather be talking to this guy than punching him, but he has no choice. Especially after the last time he came, when he first came face to face, it was clear Bucky didn't know who he was. 
he's yeah. starting to get some sort of recognition. So he's coming into it saying there is, if there is any chance of me getting through to him, I'm going to take it, even if it means risking myself. There's a brilliant symbolism in the fact that uh, Steve drops his shield, something that he uses, especially in this film, as an offensive and a defensive uh, weapon. Uh, he drops both offense and defense with Bucky, and for the first time ever, basically, for the first person ever, uh, makes himself entirely vulnerable. The whole culmination of their fight at the end is Bucky, like, it seems as if he doesn't, Bucky doesn't want to remember anymore. Yeah. Because of all the things he's done, all the things he's gone through, remembering would hurt more than not. Well, you, you also have to consider, um, the fact that the Winter Soldier has assassinated a lot of people over mm. a 50 year period. Mm. Maybe so, even his friends. Ha- coming to terms, you know, with his relationship with Captain America also means he has to come to terms with all the horrors he's committed. Um, he, it, it's basically him coming to terms with his relationship with Captain America is almost him becoming human again. And before he was just a machine so he could carry out those missions with no um, moral confusion whatsoever. But now having these memories flood back, it's like, oh God, now I have to reconcile the fact that I have ruined people's lives over this huge period of time. You can see him almost grabbing for that as well when he starts to realise you know who who Steve is and who he is denying that and pushing it away from him because the weight of guilt that comes with it is too heavy at that point and it's great the way the way that they've left him he's he's out there Hydra is no longer a factor to him but he's also got the emotional weight of what he's done as much as he wants to deny it he has to walk on with it but he can't stay with uh, Steve because I don't. I believe that he just couldn't live with himself. Trying to in re- he's also got the whole issue of trying to reintegrate with society. If he did, I could actually see Natasha helping him with that. Actually, yeah, true. But I like the fact that now he's out there as an unknown entity. Mm. He has no allegiances anymore. This all comes back to Bourne as well. Clearly, uh, the uh, Winter Soldier storyline by Brubaker came out shortly after the Bourne films did. Um, hang on, let me just double-check that one. It was just before Civil War, wasn't it? It's 2005. 2005, yeah. So uh, it would have been just after um, a Supremacy, but slightly before Ultimatum. Interesting, when we were watching the Bourne Legacy yesterday, a lot of your feelings for... Um, Aaron, the character played by Jeremy Renner, uh, you've got this residual uh, pity for him from Jason Bourne because you figure he's he's gone through a similar scenario to him. So similarly with Bucky, you've got uh, uh, pity for him uh, because you remember uh, the character of Bucky. You've got pity for him because you know what Jason Bourne went through and subconsciously maybe you have pity for him because of what Alex Murphy went through. The OCP of this universe decided that they could use his body they didn't really want his brain. That was incidental. So that they used his body and his reflexes and they created a movable gun in the most dehumanizing way possible. <clears throat> it's both terrifying the idea of him coming after you, but it's also terrifying the idea of what he went through. Mm. 
So yeah, uh, I think we've got one of our absolute top tier Marvel antagonists who, uh, if it goes by the comics, is most likely going to be... Re- well, Sebastian Stan's been signed up for no- uh, nine Marvel movies, including this one, uh, unless I'm very much mistaken. Um, when uh, Chris hangs up his uh, cap outfit, chances are Sebastian's going to be stepping in. Which is what happened in the comics. That's not a spoiler. That's a prediction. Part of the way that uh, Steve reacts to Shield and to Nick specifically um, kind of suggested to me that they're bringing in threads of the Civil War storyline, or at least um, bringing in elements of how Steve behaves in that storyline to his character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm. So I, I. would be very interested to see where they plan on going with that but you can see in his sort of kicking out against the idea of um governmental restrictions the idea that um you know the big power has the ability to make decisions for the masses um, and that being something that he is deeply deeply uncomfortable with um which fits perfectly with how he responds to the civil war situation in all seriousness Two things have to happen uh, for Civil War to take place. One is that Spider-Man needs to be part of the MCU. You can't do Civil War without Spider-Man. It is too, it's it too important. He's too big a part of that story. He's too big. Yeah, absolutely. It's so much of Civil War hung on the fact that the one guy who never gives away his identity actually came out to the public with that. So he needs to be part of that. Uh, and the other, it really, you need Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four. Um, yeah, it, he's also a vital part of yeah, the story as well. Him and, and Tony putting that stuff together. Hank Pym, you could probably get away with Tony th- figuring a lot of Hank Pym stuff out. I was listening to a really quite good audiobook version of Civil War recently and thinking, could I do this as like a cinematic, um, sort of a short audio drama version, uh, incorporating elements of the uh, audio established Marvel Cinematic Universe there's too much that hasn't been introduced yet there are too many second tier, third tier fourth tier heroes and villains it's too small right now it needs to grow and grow and Civil War is something that really needs to come a lot further down the line to the point where I'm not sure um, Chris Evans will be anywhere near the cap suit at that point which is interesting because you really need Steve Rogers for that version of cap so basically, our smart money rests on Strange for the new character that we don't know about yet for his own movie. Yeah, or, I think so, with name-checking him. How about Thor 3 prominently feature Doctor Strange? Well, that's what the rumour was it floats. for Thor 2. Yeah. Well, that really would have been it. interesting! I suppose they focused on the Thor-Loki relationship, which wasn't a bad thing at all. That was, that was the best Anything that gets more Tom Hiddleston in, on screen, I'm all for. Oh, yes. We do like him. Ooh, it burns you. It burns you. I wasn't in Cap 2. <laughs> <laughs> to have come so close. And I'm still on the throne of Asgard. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't, I just kept saying the ending. I didn't spoil it. Oh, actually, that's a fine point. That's what really struck me about this one. It rounded it up and it actually made the arc that they have approached throughout the phase two much clearer. It's out with the old guard. Tony Stark has destroyed all his Iron Man suits and moved on to new things. Thor has left Asgard and left it in charge, unbeknownst to him, to Loki while he looks after the Earth. And S.H.I.E.L.D. has been destroyed from within. 
to be regenerated for uh, Avengers in some way. I'm hoping Sword makes an appearance in some way. Um, yes, I was hoping that Sword might even drop in this get one. Abigail Brand. Yes. But we want Joss to handle her straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this this whole um, arc appears to have been about okay, everything that we set up with this first series. It's it's out the window, and we're completely. This second season has been about chucking. I say season; it feels like a long-running TV show. Yeah, it does. But huh. if you think about it, we haven't really had a long-running film series of interlinking films like this ever before. This is new ground, so of course it's going to feel more like a TV show with interlinking, you know, vast array of characters, um, more like that than just a series of superhero movies where there's a villain of the week. Mm-hmm. Someone said, uh, one, another one of these non-comic fan critics whose uh, assessment of the film was, uh, it's becoming like a long-running TV sh- series where uh, in the world is saved every week. Did you not notice S.H.I.E.L.D. was torn apart in this one? That's, I mean, that may not mean much to you, but it means a fuck ton to everyone who actually has anything invested in this universe. Hmm. They were what allowed the Avengers to happen. The thing that really scares me about S.H.I.E.L.D. being dismantled in the way it is, is that we all know Ultron is coming. Mm. Um, Ultron is one of those baddies that is really powerful, like yeah, yeah. extremely powerful. So the fact that one of the most powerful global you know, protection agencies mm. has completely dismantled worries me considerably yeah because the stakes yeah cia can't deal with ultron nsa yeah yeah, that's scary Uh, cap's gonna be on the phone to four four quick get here quickly is anybody seen the hulk (laughs) someone track down bruce brother at that point thor should be there because he's on earth now true enough yeah at which point i mean frankly all of them are there why not just get together as normal Oh, yeah. <sighs> Is everybody going to have their Bruce Banner counselling session? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So I, what I happened? Difficulty expressing myself to Jane. I'm sorry, I told you before, I'm not that kind of doctor. Okay, so hidden stuff. We'll just hop, skip and jump through this and then we'll jump out. Um, Batrock... Uh, in the, at the beginning, the M- MMA guy, it, it was uh, originally in the comics. Anyone want to guess what year he first appeared? He's a no. he's a sixties one, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, sixty six. So yeah, he's uh, kind of ridiculous. Yeah, play to this movie making him a badass. Uh, anyone want to tell us what his real name is in the comics, or his his real title as a super as a supervillain? Can I say it? Yeah, Batroc the Leaper. The Leaper. If you want something leapt, Batroc's your man. <laughs> Please tell me that's not because he's French. Paco. Paco. He runs around saying parkour while jumping up. (laughs) (laughs) You'll never catch me in my parkour. Hidden stuff number two. Um, Brock Rumlow. He was that asshole shield agent who turned out to be an asshole Hydra agent. Uh, Anybody want to tell us who this guy actually is? Is he Skull and Bones? Uh, Yeah, Crossbones. Crossbones. I predicted that at the end. I was like, right, they couldn't have kept him alive for any other reason than he's someone from the comics. Probably Crossbones. And I was dead right. Uh, I'd never cross paths with Crossbones, but basically, uh, I would imagine he'll be a merc in the, uh, if he turns up in Cap 3. Or someone, someone for hire who basically has a grudge against Cap and is particularly vicious. Works with AIM. 
Oh, really? So that'll be... Um... No, uh, that's my prediction. He probably ends up working. The head of AIM exploded! Well... So mm. did Hydra, but hey, it didn't matter. Yeah, true. They really and AIM's one of those... You explode one head and the others will follow. AIM is one where they don't have a particular goal. They're aimless. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> yeah. oh. Jeez, well, of all the acronyms they could possibly go by then. Okay, hidden stuff number three. Kate slash Agent 13 slash Sharon in the film never got uh, billed as Sharon Carter. But it didn't really strike me until I'd read um, Cap's uh, appearance in Civil War. I was like, Carter, hang on. I don't remember Peggy Carter ever being a character in the Cap storyline. I think they set up Peggy... Carter in the first Avenger to be the great grandmother of or grandmother of Sharon Carter in this makes sense Good yeah. water invested. to which I'm kind of surprised they didn't actually just straight out say that hmm. I mean, maybe it's one, two, revela- too many revelations but yeah yeah for the third one will be they've good. they've I got the impression they've held that back deliberately because she's um she's credited as Kate Agent 13. Yeah. Um, Kate is her cover name. Agent 13 is obviously her agent name. Um, and uh, Natasha refers to her as Sharon, but Carter is never given as her name. Especially considering the fact you kind of want to hide the fact that one of the founding members of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s child is an agent. True, true. But uh, it was a nice uh, little reveal there, and I was uh, dead pleased that that turned out to be the case, because... Um, uh, if you read the Winter Soldier um, graphic novel, most of the stuff that that Steve discusses with Natasha, he's actually discussing with Sharon in that one. That's she plays a major uh, role as his um, uh, partner in that. Effectively, that's what they are partners, um, as in Shield partners, not romantic partners. Although Sharon is clearly in love with him as well. Hidden stuff number four. Jasper Sitwell has been in more than you would expect in terms of Avengers stuff. He was the guy who turned out to be the Hydra agent with the shifty eyes, uh, the bald one. He was originally a hostage on the uh, uh, the, the boat. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was in Thor. He was in The Consultant, which is the one where... Uh, <gasps> That's where I recognized him <laughs> yeah. He's the one talking to <laughs> Agent Coulson about them arranging for Stark to go and talk to uh, You're talking about The Consultant. just described him to a T. Yeah, and he's really funny, so I was like, oh, no, he's in Hydra. Uh, he was in The Avengers in the background somewhere. Uh, he was in Item 47. That's the one where they get the... Um, Alien weapon. Yeah, it's, it's, the weapon. it's the short that's attached to the Avengers Blu-ray. Um, and he's in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He's played by Maximiliano Hernandez. And I think a lot of uh, Agent Sitwell's fans are going to be kind of sad that he pulled it a 180 on them. Hidden stuff number five. Stand the man Lee as Smithsonian guard. <laughs> what can we say? Everybody, everybody laughed at this point, obviously. It's more Stan Lee. I did say that um, uh, this is going to date, because I really hope that he doesn't ever shuffle off this mortal coil. But uh, a, a perfect gravestone for this guy would be Created Legends, Nuff Said. Or, Created Legends, then spent 1,000 years doing cameos in films related to those legends, Stanley, 1923 to 3002. <laughs> Nuff Said. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would happily have him live for 1,000 years doing stuff like this. It's great. 
Um, I, I still wish that he'd played the Harry Dean Stanton character in uh, The Avengers, just having a proper talk with the Hulk. It's, it was kind of time for him to act a bit more. But um, Stanton did a great job anyway. In the um, just world, they'd figure out how to use Stanley to tie together all the Marvel Universe. Yeah. He's a watcher. Someone said that they'd love Stanley to play the watcher in the, in the Fantastic <laughs> Four movie. That'd be great. That's why he keeps turning up all the time in all these Marvel movies that aren't owned by the same company. Yeah. And that would explain why, yeah, he's, he's, he's the, the goes by secret guises and, and I'm watching everything. That actually has a narrative sense to it. You're putting way too much faith in Stanley's acting talent there, my friend. I don't really need him to act as anyone other than Stan Lee, but uh, but yeah. I mean, uh, who's the Watcher going to be thousands of years ago? Okay, uh, Hidden Stuff number six. Did anyone spot Gary Sinise in this movie? No. No. He was the voice of the exhibit in the Smithsonian Museum. <laughs> nice. Hidden Stuff number seven. Danny Pudi as Contact <laughs> Yes. Again, I was, me and Sharon were the only people in the audience going, oh my Everyone else yeah. is like, what? See? He's just a Comtech. <laughs> but it, it seemed almost like his appearance in, um, was it, was it Cougar Town? Where yeah. he's sort of eating in the background. <laughs> I, I'm just waiting for them to reference it in, in community. That would, of course, be because these. Uh, I tried out to be an extra. <laughs> yeah, I was an extra in uh, uh, Captain America 2. Did you see it? It was very good. Uh, hidden stuff number eight. Uh, Councilwoman Hawley. It's not really hidden, but it's Jenny Agatha apparently kicking ass. That was a nice uh, unexpected moment. She of An American Werewolf in London, one of my absolute favourite horror movies of all time. I was kind of a bit disappointed when it turned out to be Natasha because... Sharon said that. (laughs) It would have made sense that, you know, council people, you know, of S.H.I.E.L.D. would sort of know how to... Yeah, I, I quite liked the idea for that brief moment that she was an ex-agent who was still retaining a lot of her skills. Yeah. Um, hidden stuff number nine. Um, Senator Stern. Uh, anyone remember where they saw this guy last? Uh, Iron Man 2. Yeah, Gary Shandling. Now that implies that anybody who is uh, a senator and an asshole probably works for Hydra. It was a good call. I could get behind that. It was a great callback. I'm really, really pleased to, to see him back in there. And uh, actually, they gave, again, it had a narrative sense to uh, the, the fact that he was trying to get Tony out of the picture. It, it kind of it gave him post-motive. Hidden stuff number 10, Stark's name on the algorithm, as I mentioned earlier. It flashed by in half a second, but it actually flashed on Avengers Tower. Yeah, so, he's, pretty, he's pretty much painted as a target, which you kind of expected. Yeah. I don't it's know. a very big target. Um. Was Steve's name on the list? It must have been, surely. Hmm. They'd probably put it on just to be on the safe side. That's the thing they probably had to add it in retrospective when he came back, because obviously well, this, the, the, this, the this whole... was thrown up very quite a while ago, wouldn't the, it? The, the whole idea of the their plan is to destroy anyone they can't control, right? Yeah. Well, they can't control Captain America... And um, you know, Iron Man, the Hulk, blah 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 blah. It's designed to eliminate anyone who would pose a threat. Yeah. But so it makes sense that Captain America's on that list. 
No, because I'll tell you why. The algorithm works off what it finds about you and what you've done and the choices you've made. And Steve hasn't made any choices for 70 years. And he also doesn't use the internet. They would have been able to find out things that other people had said about Captain America and about Steve Rogers, but not things that he himself had done. You don't think they could just add to the algorithm and also Steve Rogers? No, well, I mean, at some point they probably would, but that's not what they're doing at this stage. They are literally going by what the computer is telling them to do. It's just the first pruning. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose the the idea that, um, and this is the thing, giving it over to a computer to decide after working it out mathematically allows people to, uh, allows the people who activate the button to behave abominably and wash their hands of the consequences and the responsibility. I just had a thought. Um, do you think the algorithm might be the basis of Ultron in the Avengers yes. movie? Yes. Combine that I was about to... with Jarvis and you've got Ultron. Yeah. Jesus. But his uh, his, conclu- his conclusion is not uh, let's exterminate a quarter of the human population or what have you. <laughs> his conclusion is humans are a failed experiment. Let's just get rid of them all. Humans? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Baron von Strucker, did you recognize the actor at all? That's the guy at the end with the monocle. He's a mm. major Captain America villain. Oh, uh, oh, crap. It was Thomas Kretschmann. He's the Jürgen Prochner type guy from King Kong, the uh, captain. He looks a bit like Nikolai Costa Waldau. Jamie Lannister. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who else what else has he been in? Uh, Him we know. Das Boot? No. But Game of Thrones? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, We're so uncultured. <laughs> I haven't seen like Das Boot in about ten years. Oh. I've never seen it. Kretschmann was also in Downfall, so he, you know, the whole Hitler going to pieces movie. He was also in Wanted, hmm, and Resident Evil Apocalypse. He's the guy that the dog goes sideways on. The second Resident Evil film. Never watched it. G- g- stay that way. I, I yeah. intend to. It's terrible. GTA, motherfucker! Uh, he has been cast as Baron Wolfgang von Strucker in Avengers Age of Ultron. So that's definitely not a, a fly-by-night cameo. He's definitely in it. And also, to add to that particular scenario, uh, that whole sequence with the twins was directed by Joss Whedon while filming Avengers Age of Ultron. Quick question. Yes. It's established that the people that are holding the twins are A. No, I, th- I thought it came across that they were Hydra. Just another. No, no they say they they particularly say that they're separate from, like they say, Shield Hydra. It doesn't matter who we operate, completely separate. And I think they oh. they are aim. Are you hoping for Modok? No, Everyone we've had it. this Modok conversation no. already. I I still think aim exists. I mean, when you think about it, Killian was uh, it is Killian, right? He was just a branch of AIM. He wasn't AIM himself. He was recruited by AIM. Yeah. Thing Fang Foom. That's what I want for the next Avengers film after after Age of Ultron. To be fair, we had Zola being the sort of computer thing. It was done well. Yeah. You know what? If they could get MODOK done well, I would trust Joss Whedon to do it. I'm calling it. That was AIM. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um... It's going to have to be one of the big um, 
companies that the Avengers companies is going to have to be one of the big organizations that uh, Avengers goes up against. And if we've already established that Hydra were flummoxed in this one, then uh, yeah, maybe uh, maybe uh, establishing AIM in uh, as a concept in Iron Man three will pay off in Avengers two. And remember, they're very much they're very much like uh, I keep forgetting his name Herzog. Uh, Herzog. This, the the hydra Jürgen Prochner. Yeah, so he's very, it's very much like that. They're all about scientific advancement, no matter what. So they'll work with whoever for whatever they want to advance in. So let's not speculate too much on how they're going to handle mutants because that's going to date a lot. But uh, can't call them mutants. Exactly. Can you call, can them, call miracles. them miracles. Look and at all my got, little miracles. And that's why it works having someone like Wanda, because every, nobody knows exactly what her powers are. Yeah. So you can call it miracles. I believe in miracles. Where you from? You sexy thing, sexy thing, you. I suppose you could just say uh, Quicksilver here, Pietro, was born with the ability to run really, really fast. It didn't kick in until his teens, but just it's some kind of mutation. Sorry, sorry, what? It's a mutation? Can we say that? A genetic... Genetic That's a genetic miracle. Yeah, just, let, let's hope they just don't take anything from uh, Ultimates 3. That's all I'm saying. Oh, God, no, yeah. Not Wasp. Be, wasp is introduced and then eat. I was thinking more of the other thing involving those two. Oh, God, yeah. Jesus. No, I don't think they will, actually. But again, it's going to be Joss Whedon-style dialogue, so there'll be little knowing winks to we can't say mutants. Mm. Isn't it? So uh, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, Sharon, you specifically looking forward to Pietro? Yes. Aaron Taylor Johnson? Yes. From Kick Ass? Yeah, I'm. Who you really like? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hail Hydra. Hail Hydra. Oh, is say- that double fisted salute not the most ridiculous thing <laughs> yeah, in the entire world? It's stupid. It's like Hail Cobra. It looks like Arnold Rimmer came up with it. Mm. To be fair, it's, we want it to be close to the Nazi salute without actually doing the Nazi salute. All no, the bits it's, just- we're twice as bad as Nazis. What we do, we held two fists in the air, not just one arm straight. All the bits with the uh, cars and the, um, uh, the the wreckages on the roads and, and the various shooting scenarios. Like I said, it reminded me of Heat. That was a really, really unexpected moment uh, for, for the Marvel Universe because you don't – we're so used to superpowers and things that for it to just come down to bullets and guns and cars and metal on the freeway and innocent people involved and people without powers being pinned by that, and it, it just really – it grabbed me. Mm-hmm. And enough people involved that you could think anyone could die at this point apart from Cap. Well, it's... Um, Daniel Floyd's talked about this on um, Extra Credits, um, the idea of... Um, what, what's it called again? Um, Sharon, you've talked about it as well. The idea of increasing the stakes actually makes it more boring. Is it power creep? Uh, something like... Spectacle creep? Spectacle, Spectacle creep. creep. That's yeah. what it's called. Like, because the conflict in Captain America Winter Soldier is so intimate, it feels more intense, it feels more dangerous. Whereas in, you know, For the Dark World, the entire universe is going to be destroyed. I don't care. Um, We're fairly certain the entire universe is not going to be plunged into darkness for any particular length of time. Don't suggest these stakes to us might be dangerous. Yeah. But... 
um, the idea of um, Nick Fury dying. That's not so ridiculous, you know. That's that's plausible. But the I... one thing they did get right was that it, it, it. I bought it when Loki died. There had been enough pulling the wall over our eyes and 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 misdirection uh, just beforehand that I was like, okay, this might actually be one. Because if they hadn't done any tricks near to it, it was like, well, there's obviously a trick. But they sold that bit. So, yeah. But it almost felt like the rest of the movie was incidental. Yeah. Well, that, that's the problem with that movie for me, is that the subplot is more interesting than me- the main plot. Yeah. Um, if you had actually made the entire movie about Loki's manipulations and trying to you know, work his way to the top, that would have been a much more interesting movie than Dark Elf gets really annoyed at lights. Um, and... <laughs> Pull a Christmas tree down. <laughs> You'd yeah. think by now he'd be used to it after thousands and thousands of years and going, look, you know, everyone else seems to have be, be quite enjoying these Get lights. Some sunblock and some shade. Why don't we just turn off the lights? Because there's only a few of us. Or just, you know, have a part of the universe that's just darkness for him. Yeah. And then just leave everyone else alone. It's fine. Stand behind the moon. Look, the thing is, the universe is very big, Dark Elf. I don't yeah. even know his name, Malekith. It's Malekith. very, very big. You could face. carve out a huge amount of space just for you and your Dark Elves, and nobody would care. It's fine. I think. Oh, you know what? Yeah. The, I think I said this in the actual podcast that the fact they neutered Malekith's story because they could. I think they released a um animated special with him as he's literally been. His whole race was disappeared and he was forced into subjugation by um, Odin and he served as a counsellor within their court this whole time were harbouring these feelings and he essentially tricked Loki into giving him the ability to wage war against Odin. But the fact they made him, oh, he just wants to remove lights from the universe because that's how it was before disappoints me I mean I don't know much about Malekith from the original comic so I don't know if they actually dumbed down the character dumbed down the character at all or I don't know it's just the fact that a version of him that they put out there very recently right close to before this movie came out they completely went against and and also, it doesn't help that Loki's in the movie, and all the way through the movie, you're <laughs> thinking, "I wish this guy was the bad guy and not the anti-hero." Um, which yeah. th- that's what Loki was in that movie. He wasn't an antagonist; he was an anti-hero. Uh, so, I mean, which is fine. Uh, I don't think that's a bad plot decision. But you've got to have a villain more scary than him if you're going to have Thor and Loki team up. I think. But so, um. In the grand scheme of things, where does this stand in your overall estimation of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? For example, mine, it goes Avengers, Iron Man, Captain America the Winter Soldier. Um, I would actually put Captain America a Winter Soldier above Iron Man, but below Avengers, only because I think the plot of uh, the Winter Soldier is more interesting to me than the plot in the original Iron Man. Mm. Iron Man has Tony Stark going for it, and that's one of the, you know, he's one of the best characters out there. Yeah. But um, just the entirety of the Winter Soldier really appeals to me. 
I will concede that Winter Soldier is a better constructed film than Iron Man, especially not the way it tails off at the end. Yeah. Uh, but I, uh, it's going to take something huge to replace, uh, to, to, to be more impactful on me personally than seeing yeah. Downey finally grab hold of Tony Stark with both hands and deliver us that performance. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, better films than it. Is it pretty much the same, just you switch the order of those two for you, Josh? Yeah, pretty much the same, except, yeah, those two switched. Anybody else want to add some to their list slightly I, before this? Or? I would say um, I, I'm in a very similar position to Josh, actually, that um, Avengers is still... Yeah, I think Avengers is still a clear first. Um, I'm not even sure how they can beat it with Avengers 2, but I think I'm, I'm very excited to find out if they can. Yeah, but I think although uh, Iron Man has more spark than Winter Soldier, Winter Soldier has more substance. So I think that would be my number two. Some For of them me, were so close. Captain America the Winter Soldier only just edges out, if we're including all the Marvel movies, uh, X-Men First Class for me, which is incredibly high as well, and that took some beating. Jerome? Um, I'm very bad at these. All I know is Avengers is my favourite right now, and stuff keeps moving. <laughs> so... I was like that when we were watching them. It's like, right, whatever we, what did we watch last? <laughs> last That's my favourite. But I will say, because of my immense bias, if they do make a Hulk movie, it might be my second favourite. Because of bias. Well, of course, yeah. You mean specifically either a World War Hulk or a Planet Hulk? Yeah. Because of your connection to that comic story. Okay. Neil? Or if they do a Silver Surfer somehow. Oh, by please breaking. make a Silver Surfer movie. <laughs> it, it, it probably if, won't happen, but if well, no, they somehow manage to. It's, it's, that's going to be a fox property, isn't it? Yeah. And they, they I don't know, they got them. some back and some exactly. back in the earth. And Silver Surfer's that weird character who's kind of connected to the Fantastic Four, <laughs> but is also his own separate thing as well. It might be interesting to see if they could do the same thing they've done with Quicksilver. With he's tied into Than- Thanos quite a lot, in fact. Yes. Oh, speaking of which, I'm sure I mentioned this before, but watching the end of the Avengers again today, Ron Perlman as Thanos, please. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and Neil, your choices. I'm like Jerome. Things shift. I will just go with a simple fact to say this: this is probably the best of all the Marvel sequels so far. Mm. Head and shoulders, it's better than the Dark World, which I was disappointed in. It's uh, head and shoulders above both Iron Man sequels. So, yeah, I think this is definitely the strongest sequel to the mm. producer. But it's definitely stronger than the original Captain America, which I really love that film. You do, yeah. This is the my Captain only, America my, movie I was really, really hoping for and waiting for. And I so think that's the why I was you had to have the first. You had to get the first one to do the setup to get yeah, to yeah. ones like this. My only query about this entire film, why is it called The Winter Soldier? Oh, it's to mislead you, I think. It, yeah. it is, because he's in it about, what, three times? It's it's Ooh. it's that thing of they know exactly that the comic the people who, who are comic book fans that reveal is nothing so they make that at the forefront. Well, that's the actually what made me laugh. I was watching uh, Captain the, the first Captain America film and I was watching the extras we showed it <laughs> and they blatantly tell you that Bucky goes on to be the Winter Soldier in the extras. Yeah. Well, again, actually, that was a question I was going to ask. Is it was it that much of a spoiler? Did the way they shoot in the film you're supposed to be sort of oh my god it's Bucky sort of but he's all over the promotion stuff like, that's not something they can really hide 
it's that thing of if you don't know, it's a nice reveal. But if you do know, it's not so f- such a huge part of it. That but if you don't know, it means you're so not invested. They'd be like, oh yeah, he was that guy. I, I no, because I do have like friends at work that the reveal has been was like a nice little extra thing for them. All right. Yeah, it's for the people that follow the, mo- the movies more than the comics. I'm fine with that because, mm. like I said, we know who Winter Soldier is. We all know what Winter Soldier goes on to be. He goes on to be Cap. You said it yourself, but there's people yeah. out there that don't know that, so it's a good thing. And the big, re- I mean, the big shock for this is the fact that Hydra was basically in Shield. Shield yeah. and Hydra were the same thing almost. That so, was the big thing. Yeah, you, you couldn't really call it the the rise of Hydra. Right? As I was saying, yeah, that would have been fucking totally flagging it. The rise of Hydra. Also, we've had enough of things rising. Okay. Yeah, it rice does seem to be far too popular at the minute. I think as well the the fact that for me knowing who the Winter Soldier was was quite a crucial part of the emotional impact of the film as a whole. Um if it had been all about the reveal, you lose a lot of that weight on repeat viewings. And we've said this recently that the it's becoming a different kind of art now to make a film which is not just about what people are going to see in the cinema. It's about what they're going to have on Blu-ray six months down the line. It's about what they're going to want to watch again and again and again and again. And I think once, even if, even if you didn't know, I think the, the worst that's going to be is a nice surprise. It's not something that once you know, it completely spoils the way the film progresses. One of the biggest things I have the most respect for about these movies is the fact that they've taken in the fact that they have people with different levels of knowledge and baggage and investments and expectations with these movies and managed to circumvent expectations of almost everybody. Yeah. I was really impressed they managed to pull this out of the hat because after um, the last two, I was thinking this is these are becoming somewhat iterative. And it took something to really push. Yeah, I wonder if this is Marvel throwing the flag down to the other films going, look, we can do sequels, we can change it up. Like I said, this is a, you know, it's a spy thriller, a political thriller. It just so happens it also involves a superhero. Of its own right. It's one absolutely astonishing performance away from being as good as The Dark Knight for me as well. I, I, I still prefer, I actually prefer Iron Man to The Dark Knight, simply because... I'm not too keen on Christian Bale now. After seeing him perform in Rises and <laughs> seeing what Batman eventually turned into, there uh, is no third film. It's not that I don't like Batman in that, but um, it's it's a much more about the Joker in that and Two Face and what Batman represents uh, than uh, Bruce and uh, Batman himself, and also kind of seeing the darkness, no parents version of uh, Batman in the Lego movie has broken him a little bit at least broken the really super dark version good um, and not I'm getting sick of that not in a way that it's like they um, they can never do it again but um, uh, it, it just shows that, that there were some really really special things about the Dark Knight and they weren't necessarily about Batman uh, so if there had been a performance along the lines of Heath Ledger's in this it would be of parallel quality hmm I don't know. I, 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 the, still, the bit that blows my mind about this film, Robert fucking Redford is in this film. He was great, wasn't he? he Robert freaking Redford. That dude is a, a fantastic actor, and he is in a comic book movie. 
And it was chilling during that bit when uh, the maid sort of walked in. Yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah. I wish you'd phoned first. And then shot her. I was like, whoa, this is a PG-13? I guess mm. didn't really show anything, but that was cold. I mean, the way they make it is if he's trying to make sure, okay, she's safe, make sure she gets out and she'll be fine. Yeah. Turns out it's just an inconvenience for her to come back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, just because it's PG-13, they're the most bloody movies you will ever see because the amount of death that you don't see come on true yeah star wars let's just let's just think about avengers for a second how many buildings get trashed true actually yes man of steel was a pg-13 they had no care for the uh the people of new york although apparently that is actually playing into the whole batman superman thing so if that actually is a plot point and something to do with story they take responsibility for it on that note Movies with the word rise or some derivation in the title are used to connote the introduction or reintroduction of something. It's all been happening over the last decade. Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, 2003. Carlitos Way, Rise to Power, 2005. Van Wilder 2, Rise of the Taj, 2006. Hannibal Rising, 2007. Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, 2007. Underworld, Rise of the Lycans, 2009. G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, 2009. Rise of the Planet of the Apes, 2011. Rise of the Guardians, 2012. The Dark Knight Rises, 2012. 300 Rise of an Empire, 2014. And The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Rise of Electro, 2014. Wait, is it actually subtitled that? Yes. Really? My God, that's terrible. I, I, actually, I don't think it is. No. I don't think I saw a trailer recently. Rise of Electro. Just double check this one. Just feels like it, though, to be fair. Ooh, is it? By the way, have any, have any of you watched Hannibal? Oh, no. It was just, one of the trailers was called Rise of Electro, and then they ditched that because everyone said, fucking enough with the rising. <laughs> also. There's the a, a, trailer was called Rise of Electro. You the remember, film. remember last year at Gplex we had Bwah. Bwah. There's it's a new even version. In cap. Oh yeah. There's a new version of that popping up in trailers that are very similar with that whole fade in. I, I can't describe the music, but you'll know when you see how it it's fades like, in. Dush, fade. Yeah. Dush, fade. Yes, dush, fade. Uh, Turtle, the Turtles trailer had that, and it booked the hell. Out of <laughs> If you show a building of a cityscape and the camera's moving ever so slightly, it has to go... Yes, it does that too. Although, I will mention that that trailer's, trailer for the Turtles actually made it look good, which yes, I'm now very worried at. I'm, I'm sorry, Neil, but the, the trailer for the first Transformers film made it look hey, good as I well. I will maintain that the first Transformers film is the only good one of that lot. That's not, saying, not saying a lot. I'm not Anyway, we should do another movie cliches episode. That one was good. Okay, thank you, lady and gentlemen, for all coming on here. This was great fun, and we went in more depth than I thought we would to the Marvel Universe itself. Is there anything left to be said about Captain America the Winter Soldier? See it. It's really, really good. Oh, if they've not seen it already, (laughs) then we've ruined it. I I would just add at the end here that for quite a long time, Captain America as a character kind of didn't interest me. Mm. Uh, This film put him like up there with Tony Stark for me. He's not the same kind of character at all. He's a very different character, but he's just as interesting and just as complex. And I uh, I love what they've done with him. I'm just going to say I now have a feeling of smug satisfaction because I've been into Cap since I was little. I've always loved Cap, and everyone usually goes, "Oh, Captain America!" It's like, no, 
dude is really awesome and he's an ass kicker and we were not presented with, with an easily digestible version of him there was no cartoon or no yeah. earlier decent movies um the bit where he first well, where Nick apparently gets shot again and he gives chase to the Winter Soldier was really intense when he's just busting through all the doors and slamming himself around and then he catches the shield it's a trailer moment but my god that's a sort of a oh my god moment one of the things that still makes me sad the reason this is why I constantly do because the first time Avengers I mean Captain America got announced I was hoping for some sort of Wolverine cameo mm. Because I grew up with the 90s cartoons and it's always been Captain America and Wolverine were quite friendly with each other. Well, in that cartoon, it paints out that Wolverine was part of the Howling Commandos. Exactly. And it would be, it would be quite interesting for Steve to have this tight, this like anchor to his past that's still around somehow. Yeah. Could still happen. There you go. Oh, remember that time we were fighting in that one place? They could, they could have met once maybe. We'll see. We'll see. Everything is possible. Indeed. And that's what uh, expanding licenses does. It makes things much more possible. I will say, I'm really looking forward to what short comes out of this one. Yeah. Because those are always interesting. I want to see more from Carter, mm-hmm. Sharon, or Peggy. Once again, thank you very much for coming on. Do you guys want to plug your respective podcasts? Uh, Game Best Fast. Yes, you can find myself and Jerome over at GameBurst.co.uk. We have the weekly news show on a Sunday hosted by myself. And on Thursday, we are live to have a roundtable, a quiz. We have Unplugged as well, so we've got plenty for you to come over and give us a listen. We're only 30 minutes, usually. Or your money back, Joshua. Okay, you can find me at CaneAndRince.com. The Cane and Rinse podcast takes a game or a series of games and we dissect them and analyse them in detail. You can also find a series of interesting articles and videos up on the Cane and Rinse blog. That's CaneAndRince.com. Um, for you comic book fans out there, uh, Cane and Rinse episode 101 is on Batman Arkham Asylum, so check that one out. Next week, we begin... Our Spider-Man podcasts, talking all about the movies all the way up to The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Rise of Electro, uh, followed by all the X-Men films. So, hope no, you got your Marvel hats on. <laughs> uh, so, I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural, Neural Handshake, handshake Complete. complete. <laughs>